Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Frozen. In Arendelle's fair kingdom, a ruler did appear. Born with a secret power so great, alone she stayed in fear. Get it together. Control it. Although the force was hidden, one day she let it go. Elsa. Sorcery. And all the land was covered in eternal ice and snow. It's completely frozen. Please, just stay away. Elsa! I'll bring her back and I'll make this right. So you're not scared? She's my sister. She would never hurt me. Yeah, I bet she's the nicest person ever. Huh? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> no. And welcome back to the Disney shows. With us once again is Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. Hello. Hello. And joining us this time is Spencer Lieb of the New Century Multiverse. You know I can't understand you when you talk like this. <laughs> Tonight we are covering one of the most significant releases of The House of Mouse. Snow White proved to the world that a feature-length animated movie was possible. Pinocchio proved that Disney could make multiple successful movies. Fantasia proved that their immediate success was not guaranteed, no matter how much passion and artistic integrity they threw into a project. Cinderella proved that they could return with a major crowd-pleaser after the wasteland of the Second World War, and the castle and aesthetic became the centrepiece of Disneyland Anaheim. 101 Dalmatians established that they could move forward with the times and change their technical and artistic processes. The Black Cauldron and later Treasure Planet proved that no matter how much money they threw at a project, they could still make an unappealing mess and fail. The Little Mermaid proved that they could make films just as good, if not better, than when Walt was alive. Beauty and the Beast established that they could make an animated movie great enough to be nominated for Best Picture in a time before the Best Animated Picture Award existed. The Lion King proved one of these films could be a phenomenal smash hit the whole world over. Fantasia 2000 proved that Fantasia was always a bad idea if you want to make money. Home <laughs> on the Range proved that they could treat the medium of 2D animation with complete disdain and throw the baby cow out with the bathwater. And Chicken Little proved that gutless aping of their competitors to gain a foothold in a now challenging market would create something soulless. The Princess and the Frog proved once again that when Disney is down, it can pick itself back up again by bringing the princess story back to life. And finally, we have Frozen, the most successful animated film to date at a $1.29 billion taking, though it's likely to soon be outstripped because The Incredibles 2 hit $1.23 and Minions $1.15, proving that you don't even have to have a great or even a good film to hit these heights. On a side note, in a list of the top 50 highest-grossing animated films of all time, three of them, three, are composed using 2D animation. Two from Disney, one from Fox. Anybody want to tell me what those three are? The Lion King. Yes, that's one of them. Beauty and the Beast. No. Oh. Snow White. No. Really? Aladdin. Huh, I would not have guessed. Neither would I. Oh, Aladdin and the Lion King. So basically, when the brothers don't object and say, oh yeah, I'll go and watch it. Bingo. While the princesses are what it takes to get Disney back up and running, 
it takes like a big fun family adventure that the boys like as well a lot to really get them that cash. And Frozen has a lot of stuff in it for boys. Anyone want to guess what the Fox film is? It's I'm this- stuck on that. I've been really trying to think that ever since you said it, and I can't think of what it is. What is it? Fox are not well known for their fantastic animated films. It ain't a fantastic film. It's an adaptation of a TV show. The Simpsons movie. Yeah. My goodness. Does anyone remember anything that happened in the Simpsons movie? There was a pig in it and a donut. Yeah, spider pig. It, it felt like a feature-length version of one of the later Simpsons episodes. So, it, it, like I said, as with Minions being number three on that list, you don't have to have a good film. It just has to be very, very appealing to a lot of people. And in the case of Minions, meme-tastic. Mm. I think if you can advertise it in such a way that everybody will think, I might quite enjoy that. Or be annoyed by it. Because Minions actually got more fame by people bitching about the fact that Minions were everywhere. It made people who loved Minions go, oh, don't be such a sourpuss. Minions are great. Your aunt loves Minions. Not your aunt, but your aunt, figuratively. Mm. She keeps sending you that stuff on Facebook. And she believed all of that stuff that Russia told her. Anyway, Frozen made insane bank because it did the classic Disney princess story differently. But... The Princess and the Frog and Wreck-It Ralph did the princess story differently just a few years previously, so it had to be more than just that factor. It has several strong qualities, and tonight we're going to explore what those qualities are and why they proved so appealing to so many, as well as why this film just plain rubs some people up the wrong way. It's been five years since release. We didn't want to talk about it back in 2013 because there was so much pervasive, constant radio airplay of Let It Go and so many hot takes. In fact... We began recording these shows just beforehand, and at the time, there wasn't anywhere near as much Disney analysis on YouTube, so the sheer divisiveness of Frozen sent the analysis spectrum in its extreme opposing directions of gushing over Disney as the weavers of our most earnest dreams, and bemoaning the unseen evils of this faceless corporation that wants to control the world like fascists. Your hand is up? Yes. Yes? No. They don't? Now we can say, well, look, here are the actual fascists. They don't control the world anywhere near like Disney does. No, they're nowhere near as competent. (laughs) These fascists have tiki torches. (laughs) We have proceeded with an audio series that has always sought out the human stories behind the making of these films. That was the remit with me, Sharon, and Dan getting down to Disney and the cultural impact that they have had. We have honed in on and lamented their bad decisions in the immediate whilst looking at the knock-on effects as time goes on that's why we did the whole thing chronologically and most of all we have applauded their excellence when they've achieved it and they have done so frequently their overall direction is and remains most definitely progressive and this film was a significant step in that welcome as we come full circle to our cold take on frozen Born of cold and winter, air and mountain rain combining. This icy force, both foul and fair, has a frozen harbor mining. So cut through the heart, cold and clear. Strike for love and strike for fear. See the beauty sharp and sheer. Split the eyes apart and break the frozen heart. Watch your step. Let it go. Ah. Oh. Watch your step. Let it go. Beautiful. Powerful. Dangerous. Oh. Ice has a magic can be controlled. Stronger than one. Stronger than ten. 
Before we start, does anybody have anything prepared to say about Frozen? Because I know sometimes Dan has like a thing. I uh, several. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you want to go before I uh, start in with the questions? Most of my questions oh, sure. are sort of uh, centered. They seem to all be centered around the musical numbers because though, like each. Each musical number is a snowflake that spirals outwards, and like the themes are sort of wrapped up in that musical number. It's actually really smart the way that this film is put together. Um, Dan, do you want to go? I don't know how many people know this, but Frozen's development was one of the one of those one of those like hell production stories. And I don't know how many people actually know it, but this is one of the worst Disney ever had. And it's hard finding a lot of details, but. Uh, but fortunately, because this movie was so huge, even though Disney has backed way off of putting a lot of like bonus material and behind the scenes stuff on their Blu-rays, like Wikipedia and other sources have really picked up the slack on a popular movie like this. So like, take all of take this relating of the story with something of a grain of salt, but still like all, of all the behind the scenes stuff I found this like nothing conflicts with this like series of events. So. Walt had toyed with the idea of doing something with Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen even before Snow White came out, but nothing really came together back then. Like there was talk at one point of Disney maybe doing some like a Snow Queen short for a Hans Christian Andersen biography movie in the 40s, but it fell through and then the whole thing was shelved. Fast forward 50 years to the late 90s and Riding high on the success of their animation renaissance, Disney started developing a Snow Queen film again, or at least they tried to. Again, it just wouldn't come together. It went through a bunch of people's hands. Glenn Keane was attached at one point, but then he left to go work on Tangled. Uh, it just wasn't working, and so back on the shelf it went. Uh, Eisner really wanted the Snow Queen thing to work out. At one point, uh, he was pitching the idea of maybe Pixar taking a crack at it once their contract with Disney was renewed, but... Um, then those contract negotiations went way south and Eisner was booted out and it just fell by the wayside again. Uh, then in 2008, once Disney animation had been put in the hands of Pixar's uh, Lassiter and Catmull, uh, Lassiter tr- tried to convince um, an old Disney guy, Chris Buck, to who had since moved on to Sony and was directing stuff like Surf's Up. He wanted to get Chris Buck back to, in Disney. So uh, he tried to like convinced Chris to come back and Buck pitched uh, several different film ideas, but one of the potential ones was the snow queen and Lassiter was really on board with that. Uh, Chris really wanted to make a film that played with the notion of true love in a way that Disney animation just hadn't before with their stories. And then the film went into development hell again, just because Disney could not crack this movie for the life of them. Finally, and It sounds like we're near the end of the story. We are not. Finally, by 2011, they got some momentum again, and the film was actually announced. So there was a release date now, and this is where things get scary. (laughs) So the the Lopez's, uh, Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, I think is her name, uh, were brought in to do the music or to write the songs. Uh, Chris Buck was directing, and they were finally going to make this, but again and again, the story just kept refusing to work. Uh, The characters just weren't resonating. And what follows at this point, now that the film is announced, is just a panicked succession of tiny breakthroughs on the way to the finish line. Uh, first, they figured out like the idea of making the protagonist, Anna, the Snow Queen's sister, instead of the Snow Queen and her being just completely unrelated. And that changes the whole dynamic of the story. Uh, then they brought in Jennifer Lee, who was one of the Wreck-It Ralph writers, 
to help screenwrite this thing. And she started reshaping the movie in a lot of exciting ways. And so the production team basically had to start over with less than two years before the film was slated to come out. Uh, then the Lopez's write a song called Let It Go for this movie, which reframes the Elsa character in a much more sympathetic way. And as soon as Jennifer Lee and the rest of the crew hear that, they're thinking to themselves, shoot, we need to start over. And so they did. <laughs> and everything changes again. But now at least they've got the core figured out. And then they have another little breakthrough when they figure out that Prince Han, this dashing prince character who would normally be the default romantic interest, he should actually be the villain. And that Olaf, the snowman character who we have played by Josh Gad, who's supposed to be this mean, obnoxious jerk character. No, he should actually be comically innocent. And why on earth did we have the thought to make Josh, J- Josh Gad play a jerk in the first place? That doesn't even make sense. Right? <laughs> I can't even picture it. And at this point, Jennifer Lee has had such a huge impact on this movie that they make her a co-director alongside Chris Buck. And now it's November 2012. The movie is supposed to come out in a year, and they think they've cracked it. And then February rolls around, and they realize they haven't again because it still isn't totally working. So songs get rewritten again, characters get added, and other ones get removed. And it's like this is a nightmare production scenario. They've got less than a year before this thing comes out. This is like approaching Toy Story 2 panic like people are going to be crunching to death to get this done. But then they do like take what they've got and they show the, some reels to some test audiences. And the reaction they get is enormous because like people adore this. So now they know they've got it and they just have to crunch this across the finish line really hard. Like the, the process of cracking a story for an animated film is like this is basically the process they all go through. They all do have these journeys. Like as as I've heard it, the only thing the first pitch for the movie up has in common with the final product is a floating building of some kind. <laughs> Nothing else was the same. It all changed as production went. But like finding these stories is always a process, but ideally it's not a process It's a process that happens in pre-production before things really get going. Ideally, you are not having to lay the track directly in front of the train, Gromit style, because this sounded like a crunch nightmare. Like, the Lopez's wrote 25 songs for this thing. Whoa. There are eight eight songs in the movie. The, The rest are all on just the floor because the film kept changing. And that's part of the natural process. You explore ideas and some don't work, but... I don't. Well, that's how they made Frozen too. <laughs> I, I do wonder though if if it's a bit the nature of the beast with animated films that the sheer number of creative people that have to be involved with the making of it is why it needs so much revision and so many ideas that that are great and you have to filter them down to which ones actually work because with a, a, a live action film it's it's much more straightforward to have one writer who is also the director and has a very specific vision of how they want it to be. But if you do that with an animated movie, you get Richard Williams and it's never finished. I was just going to say, imagine Richard Williams being put in this level of crunch time. He'd just explode. (laughs) We'd still be waiting for it to come out. On a bittersweet note, rest in peace, Richard Williams, who died on my 39th birthday this year. A truly extraordinary filmmaker. Maybe not for the reasons he wanted, but he's noteworthy all the same. If you haven't heard our The Thief and the Cobbler podcast, you owe it to yourself to go on this madcap, ridiculous journey with us. And we'll be talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit at some point very soon. But there's a reason that these, like with Pixar and Disney as well, like they, the 
like movies will be in the works at these studios for five years or more, but the majority of that time is not production. Like at least three years of that is uh, a much smaller team just focusing on just getting the story sorted out. Like the story team is working for years, just iterating over and over and over and over, figuring out just like throwing out thousands of pages of storyboards at a time, replacing it with new stuff, trying to, hone that thing down to just the essence of what that movie needs to be and then once they've got it then they bring in the whole rest of the big team to actually produce it and it'll still change they'll find ways to improve it as they go but it's it's really wasteful to make these changes once you've got the huge engine working on it because that's that's expensive this so, is why disney at their best not are, are so compulsive because you can just stick this 80 minute film on and it just flies by and it hits the salient points as it goes uh, specifically like 90s onwards when, whenever they just hit it out of the park like you, you we watched aladdin again uh, the other day after watching the uh, teaser trailer and I, I was immediately crestfallen by checking the imdb and it was like no voice for iago i don't think iago is going to talk and I, I just watched aladdin like so fondly looking at like how each component works so smoothly in the in the grand scheme of things like every, everything's the the term firing on all cylinders applies here that that, that usually describes an engine where all the parts are working. Iago's an important part of that engine, and, and I, I can't imagine what this live-action Aladdin's going to achieve, but okay. And you'll hear what we thought of Aladdin and The Lion King and the live-action Beauty and the Beast on a show I'm cooking up on all the recent Disney live-action remakes. The ones we think are good and the ones we think are bad. But back to Frozen, the pre-live-action pre-make. It's a rare case in modern Disney history where we know a production was troubled and details about that have come out. <clears throat> so it, like, it, it makes me appreciate the film we get all the more because like, I would not have wanted to work on this, even despite the fact that it is one of the most successful beloved films of all time at the end of the day. Because like, usually when a crew has to crunch like that, the movie still doesn't end like you don't get this happy ending at the end where the film is beloved like this. Mm. But uh, but I'm glad for them that it is. Ever since Tangled in 2010, Disney turned a corner and rolled back to how they portrayed their animation wing prior to the year 2000 and the advent of Diamond Edition DVDs. In mystifyingly stubborn fashion, they now maintain that their sausages are simply magicked into being with a dash of wishes and a sprinkle of pixie dust. They made sure to only include seven minutes of actual involved material on the extras of what is called the Collector's Edition Blu-ray in the UK. It's a brief talk about bringing the fairy tale to life. They even have a, the bloody-minded audacity to have a Making of Frozen featurette. It's a musical <laughs> skit straight out of Glee, and it is three minutes long, and it ends with a cheery, grinning musical cast admitting that they don't know how Frozen was made, and so it shall remain, unless you listen to our show or check out Wikipedia, it would appear. But we did watch a couple of interviews. The ones that stood out for me, that I, I made sure that Sharon saw, were uh, the one with Kristen Bell and um, the one with... Idina Menzel. Idina Menzel, which were quite revealing, if not just of how they relate to their character, but the Idina Menzel one, you you noted, was was very revealing to who she was as a person. Mm. What did you notice? Well, just the fact that she... I mean, it's very apparent that she doesn't do this very often, her being a, a lead role and participating in the... What do they call it? 
big and budget Hollywood. No, no, oh, no, this the circuit. Doing this, yeah, the promotion circuit. Uh, she she doesn't seem to do that very often. The last time I can remember seeing her in a, a enchanted a lead ish role was Enchanted. Yeah, yeah. it's um, it's kind of fun how at the end of Enchanted she's just the girlfriend who would normally get discarded, but then she gets the Cinderella slipper mm-hmm. and gets to go off and be a princess. Absolutely. And it's like, and then she walked through a door and came out as Elsa. And well deserved because she's a great character in that. Hmm. What really fascinated me was the fact that it was it was like watching an interview with two different people. She's obviously very introverted, and she admits in the interview that that she suffers from well, she doesn't use the exact phrasing, but that she seems to suffer from some kind of social anxiety, hmm. um, and she gets very caught up in what people think of her and and um, judgments that may be coming down upon her. And whenever she's talking about something where she seems very very conscious of how what she says is going to be perceived, so if she's talking talking about other people that she's worked with or if she's talking about something that's that sounds to be very much the party line her voice is very high-pitched and girlish and um, her expression is her head's all over the place like a little bird and she won't make eye contact with the interviewer but then when he asks her a question that she has a personal answer to she sits still looks him dead in the eye and her voice drops noticeably Mm. and she suddenly becomes this sort of very mature confident person Uh, and it's it's really interesting to see that transition take place and they, you can see that bleed through into mm. Elsa herself as yeah. the, the character. I think people responded to a level of authenticity there, which is kind of not unusual for Disney, but it's notable for being very potent. Yeah, here. well, she said that she identifies very strongly with Elsa in both good and bad ways. Mm-hmm. They brought Adina Menzel into the studio at one point to just so she could... Uh, uh, talk to the animation team so they could uh, ask questions, like ask how she sings, like how does she breathe, just so they could get ideas for like how to animate her. And the animation supervisor says he got the feeling that she doesn't do this very often and that maybe she wasn't expecting a room of like 100 people <laughs> to be sitting there listening to her and that she looked a little uncomfortable and, and self-conscious and stuff like that. And he was looking at that and then seeing and thinking to himself, this is actually really Elsa and it, who was pulling in like a lot from her natural way of just being in front of a crowd and being a little just stressed by that. So the and coronation it, ceremony, all of that yeah. was pretty much analogous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, like animators pick up on that stuff. If they can, if they get a chance to actually see it, there's a reason that for every Disney film, when they have those actors in the booth, they have at least two cameras shooting them at all times. Mm. <laughs> Cause those animators are just going to be studying that footage to, pick out just little ways they move and try to get ideas. She got her start on Broadway. How was she nervous in front of a crowd? I wonder that too. <laughs> it's, it's, I, it's not, if it's social anxiety, there's a difference between a crowd of people watching you do the thing you know you can do yeah. and you're not, it's, it's not so much that the judgment doesn't matter, but if you know how it works and you know how to hold an audience spellbound with your voice. If you know the script. Exactly. But or or if you're doing something that is very very authentic and you can stop caring what people think. But when it's stuff that everybody else seems to do very easily and in a very slick manner and you can't do, that's when the terror sets in. I'm a great podcaster, but if you got me to talk on the phone to somebody, a bank manager who was going to start asking me questions about my you know various numbers that attach to my life, I just oh, just why are you talking to me? I talk to Sharon. I'm <laughs> rubbish at being asked questions for things that I'm not specialized in. Mm, yeah. I, I, I will simply jump to straight. I don't know. I, I have no idea. You know. 
there is sort of a performance mode you go into as well when you are yeah. like when you're an actor and a performer and you get on stage and you just like it's it's a different frame of mind that where you're not thinking about self like yourself or how you're feeling about a thing you are just performing and mm-hmm. you it, it's a different mindset so i could absolutely see her being much less comfortable on a press circuit that she is not as familiar like where she's not as comfortable or familiar versus performing which she has done much of her life if you think about about social anxiety as a state of feeling like if you if as an actor if you're embodying a character you're putting on clothes if you're then forced to do an interview where they're asking you how you feel they rip those clothes off you're laid bare you then have to account for yourself it's terrifying in some circumstances which again circles back to being that's very elsa which i'm actually curious how much of elsa's character was before watching her be that way or if it was just like no we've like just reaffirming we have cast the correct person for this well there's one deleted scene on the uh, blu-ray which uh, showed the original version of or or maybe an intermediate version of elsa uh, where some guards were like climbing up her mountain to ask her for something and she sort of confronts them and she's like a freaking batman villain she's like so you came up the mountain did you and that's not Idina Manzel at all. <laughs> so it feels like that was prior to her really being on board. There's a couple of little hiccups. Um, but yeah, just uh, about the social anxiety thing and how... Nice to see you. Oh, very good. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> how it can come out in very mysterious ways to people who don't have it. Um, there's a TED Talk available on YouTube by Jordan Raskopoulos about high-functioning social anxiety. And she talks about... The fact that she doesn't have stage fright, she has life fright. Ooh, good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get down to brass tacks. What happened in the original story of the Snow Queen? Can anybody summarise it? Okay, there is a magic mirror which makes everybody think the negative about everything that they see in the mirror. Okay. It's invented by the devil. He wants to put it in heaven, but he drops it and it smashes, and bits of it get everywhere on Earth. And it, Where's it's... Olaf at this, as this is going on? <laughs> Underneath the mirror. Okay. <laughs> it crushed him on the way down. So everybody on Earth uh, is affected by the bits of this mirror in one way or another, and some people get bits lodged in their eyes, and they can only see the negative in life. Enter... Your two central characters, Gerda and Gerda and Kai. Oh, Kay. Who are or Kay, sorry, Gerda and Kay. And they are a boy and a girl who are friends who are effectively brother and sister. They've grown up very close together. And Kay gets a bit of this mirror in his eye and ends up becoming very he starts being very nasty to Gerda in a way that he's never been before. And then he ends up going off with a mysterious figure who is essentially the same as the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. Jardis is very Snow Queen inspired. Exactly, yeah. The way she seduces Edmund, Kay is seduced in a very similar way. Turkish and Delight. He goes off with her. I'm sure Turkish Delight and Hot Chocolate are involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he goes Does off with her. Does her sleigh then- have a talking reindeer that thinks it's a dog? Uh, No, but I think there is one later in the story. Okay, that's all right then. So most of the story is Gerda travelling through the land trying to get Kay back. Everybody tells her to forget about him because he obviously fell in the river and drowned, but she doesn't believe that. So she comes across certain characters and, um, and people... 
reindeers, robber girls, talking crows that help her find the Snow Queen's palace. And then when she meets Kay, he doesn't recognise her. He doesn't remember anything because the Snow Queen's taken away all his memories. And she cries on him. The tears melt the mirror in his eye. And then his memories come back. He recognises her and happily ever after they go back home again. So effectively, it's the same ending whereby love thaws him out. Yes. Okay. That mirror concept is very cool. Like, just as a piece of mythology, that is a really cool concept. I like that a lot. And it's the fact that it's specifically linked with Kay hitting adolescence as well. So in the opening prologue of Frozen, we meet uh, young princesses Anna and Elsa, and uh, we see how a playing session turned dangerous. And pretty much all of the hardship that comes in this movie stems from decisions that were made by their parents, the king and queen, in response to this accident. Are you shaking your head? I am shaking my head. Terrible. Okay, I'm about to ask, what were those responses, and why were they so catastrophically bad? Terrible terrible parents. So in case people haven't seen this film in a while, uh, Elsa and Anna are playing uh, and uh, Anna's like do the snow trick and she's jumping between little snow mountains that Elsa makes for her. She jumps too fast, Elsa tells her to slow down, she whacks her in the head uh, with uh, ice powers they take her to a troll mage who says that Anna, who says that Elsa has terrible, terrible powers and that fear will be um, what was the exact wording on it? Fear will be her greatest enemy, and that if she doesn't learn how to control her powers, it will be catastrophic and terrible for the whole land, and that she she, she has to do that. And um, then her parents decide, okay, so you need to go to your room forever and uh, conceal, don't feel, these are some gloves. Right. Let me tell you a little something about social anxiety in introverts. (laughs) Okay, what what Elsa is effectively in possession of, if you rule out the ice powers, which are just a visual and thematic manifestation, she is a young girl who experiences very intense emotions and feels the world in a very intense way. And very early on, they outline that Anna is an extrovert and Elsa is an introvert. And Anna has this wonderful line of, the sky's awake, so I'm awake and I must play. And I was sat there going, oh my God, take her away from me. Um, Because I find that (laughs) terrifyingly cheerful. And in response to Elsa manifesting these emotions that she doesn't yet, and yet is a really important word in this, she doesn't yet know how to control, her parents' reaction is, nobody must know about this, cover it up, keep it behind closed doors, don't ever talk to anybody about it, don't ever share it with anybody, just hide it. What were they thinking? What's the best they thought was going to happen, that it would eventually just go away on its own? What? How do you react to a troll character saying... Fear is the biggest threat here. And then your reaction to that is to stress to your child immediately. It's like, okay, we need to be really afraid of this. Lock yourself in your room. Okay, okay. okay. If, if you have... Because, my darling, you are a monster. 
absolutely. And, and, and never forget that, you know, sweet and adorable though we know you are, the rest of the world couldn't possibly understand you. This might sound awful, uh, for, you know, if, if you hadn't really been thinking along those lines yourself, because um, they're not Carrie's mum. They're not actually saying, you're a monster, this is terrible, you're cursed. Uh, And, you know, you're a filthy beast, even despite any powers you might be exhibiting. Uh, They're they're nice. They clearly love her. They are are sweet-natured, good, kind parents who are trying their best. It's just that their best is a series of terrible, terrible decisions. And and that's what makes it almost more insidious, is because it's like, yeah, you can see the logic behind what they're doing. Even as a kid, as you grew up, you would not question what they're doing because you're like yeah i totally get why they feel this way it's it's almost like their argument is like now sweetie uh we're terrified afraid and confused by your powers and we're the adults in this situation so obviously there's no hope for you so absolutely and it's almost like if they'd been you're a monster and we're going to beat you and hide you in cupboards and all that kind of things elsa would have realized oh you people are terrible and i should ignore you completely much earlier yeah and killed them. Quite feasibly, yes. That's usually but what happens in these scenarios. But then it's, it's just it, Carrie. <laughs> it's, it, it's okay, though, because Disney, movie, Disney movies' treatment of parents got to it first. Well, yes, this is true, mm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, the, if the child doesn't kill you, then something else will. There are a couple of other really poor decisions mixed in with this that aren't just about the treatment of Elsa, but gem- just generally what to do regarding the kingdom's legacy. There's no one else there for either sister to talk to in this movie i was saying this when we watched it recently why isn't there a zazu why isn't there a butler type a A mary poppins would be very helpful at this juncture a nanny a grand vizier a someone who's there and and who isn't on the ship when the parents get killed and who like anna can defer to when when elsa can't talk to her it is a ghost town in that palace uh-huh. and you oh. know what else that extra person would add they would make Anna not so desperate for human company that she literally grabs onto the first person who comes along but it seems oh, like yeah. to get the characters we have there has to be nobody and you have to not ask that question where's Zazu yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. Three out of the four people involved in this decision to cover up the magic and stuff know that there's a troll who clearly knows more about this magic than anyone involved, and none of them go to the troll and be like, hey, could you teach her how to use this magic? Yeah, or at least tell us, is there someone who might know it? Because the troll's like, oh, yeah, there's some magic. And it's like, right, so this is a land where there's magic. So there's going to be magic users. So there's going to be someone out there. Obviously, there's the whole Elsa's a mutant. Elsa needs to go to Xavier's Academy thing. That's all great fun hot takes that have been done since 2013. But it's true, and it's relevant, and there should, frankly, have been a sorceress who turned up and went, we are the future Elsa, not them. And <laughs> and who actually, oh, yeah. you know, effectively represented the other side of the coin, the other direction Elsa could go. But there's none of that. Elsa doesn't get taught how to deal with this by anyone they don't even debate it i just had a completely off-topic thought and now i really want to see an elsa maleficent team up in kingdom hearts 3 and that's going to bum me out when it doesn't happen but in terms of storytelling elegance i do really love how this collection of poor decisions on the parents part so perfectly set up and immediately make clear the character arcs of both of these both anna and elsa at the same time, like in over this in the span of one song, you can track exactly how the two of them have grown up as a result of this decision. And it sets up the dramatic arc of the entire film for both characters. Like this is 
a really, I don't know, this is a really, this is one of my favorite parts of this movie, just this little elegant bit of storytelling right here and how much it clearly conveys for both characters and how much you understand both, how it impacts the both of them. And you can be kind of in both of their heads feeling how they feel about this at the same time. On a side note, by the way, the uh, not having a Zazu or anybody effectively in charge, no regent, nothing, uh, means that the decision is to make Elsa queen when she comes of age. Like uh, after a grace period where the parents died, but Elsa clearly wasn't old enough to become queen. Who was in charge until that point? We don't know. Don't ask questions. But more specifically... The parents didn't leave any executive order of, okay, if we were to suddenly, I don't know, die, Anna becomes queen. We know Elsa is a year or so older. She ain't much older. We know Elsa is a little bit older, but age in this case does not equate to queenly responsibility. She can kill people by thinking about it. That's technically great for the powers of a queen who knows what the hell she's doing, but it's terrible for the what we consider our daughter to be right now, which is a monster who doesn't know how to control her powers. Why the hell is an Anna in line for the throne via a caveat in the royal doctrine? And it's, again, to facilitate all of the events of this film. Because they didn't even leave a command behind to be like, oh, okay, if we die suddenly, someone tell Anna that Elsa has magic powers. The incompetence of these yeah. two. <laughs> if, if anything, I'm starting to think that this that that's, uh, ship sinking was possibly the best thing for the kingdom, because these people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pitch a little bit of headcanon here. Maybe the parents did leave such a thing, and the house staff were thinking, okay, Anna's our best bet. Then they saw her talking to the Joan painting for a year straight, and were like, never mind, we're going to go with the Snow Queen. <laughs> Anna's batshit crazy. But also, like, they, they shut in Anna as well. Like, Anna should be going around talking yes. to people. Yes. They forced yes. Anna to Absolutely. stay inside for no reason. Yep. She's like, the window is open, so is that door. I'm going to be let out of captivity. Why did you keep Anna in captivity? She could be getting to know her people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe that would be useful if you were going to be, say, the queen. Well, I was... <laughs> so I was, I was interpreted that those parts of the song as not like the staff must, is shutting everyone in. It's Elsa's in charge and also the the holdover from the hyper secretive parents are we're keeping everything closed because we don't want anyone to see the slightest chance that Elsa has ice magic. And that's just those are just weird holdovers that, you know, when you when you spend 16 to 17 years growing up with them, you don't question it. OK, so do you want to build a snowman? Uh, that's not a question. Not really. Uh, do you want to build a snowman? The song immediately followed by for the first time in forever. We can talk about both of these because they're they're almost like a it's a duet. Like a, a, a you know how two songs in an album follow each other the way that um, we will rock you is always followed by we are we are the champions. Uh, these two match. They 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 fit together. Uh, do you want to build a snowman? Immediately followed by for the first time in forever juxtaposes Anna and Elsa. What did you spot in these two songs that tells us about their different characters? Now we can talk about detail here. Well, I'm also going to say, following the thread from your previous Disney podcasts, these two songs combined are the a girl sits down on a tree and says, I want. That's yeah. the It's the I want song, and it's for both of them. Because of the juxtaposition. Uh, with Elsa, it's usually, it's, it's a, a very small amount of her actual input in both songs. Mm. But it's because she wants something very, very straightforward, which is stay still. Mm -hmm. But this is, 
there's a reason that Elsa's I want is very restrained. There's, like you say, there are tiny threads of it, tiny hints, but you never see much of it because her I want is effectively when she gets what she didn't know she wanted, which is freedom. The ability to just Mm -hmm. let rip with who she really is. And that doesn't come until much, much later. The ability to voice that she wanted it. Yeah. And and that's part of what's fascinating about this sequence is it's really nuanced in that it, or specifically it shows the nuance to Elsa in that she has this complicated thing of she wants to be free, but she also wants to be left alone. She wants to be, she wants to be isolated, not because she wants to never bond with anyone. She wants to be isolated to keep everyone else safe because she actually very much cares about everyone. And I think that shot of after the parents die, where she's got her head down on her knees in the frozen room want clearly like using the language of cinema using uh the visuals as storytelling is so powerful because uh her she clearly wants to reach out and respond to anna she clearly wants to like go build a snowman she wants things to go back to the way they were in more ways than one and she knows she can't Mm. you can read a lot about elsa's mood by how her ice powers are manifesting themselves when she's playful everything's soft and rounded when she's focused everything is very elaborate and beautiful and elegant when she's angry or terrified everything becomes very rough and um there's a there's a moment in the scene where she hits anna for the first time with the ice blast and everything changes from that frosty beautiful swirly pattern to just just ice just solid patches and cloudy fragments yeah, and and well, and this is actually all kind of summed up in the the actual opening of the movie is the musical number with um, uh, Christoph's uh, people. Beware the, the, the heart. Mm. Yeah, beware the frozen heart, which is basically like that song exists solely because it's I don't know the the technical term for it, but it's the it's the opening of Romeo and Juliet, the the uh, two houses both alike in dignity. The sort of this is the synopsis of what's about to happen, so you understand what we're in for. But that entire song is praising the complexity and variation to ice, and the song is about. Elsa, ultimately. Yes. Um, um, and it, it's also very much reflective of how uh, anyone who's actually been around snow and ice knows there's a bunch of different kinds of snow and ice. And I think that gets reflected in, like you said, Elsa's moods, where where as the, grad- the gradation of Elsa's moods affects the gradation of the ice, where when she's playful, it's soft and fluffy. And it's like, yeah, it's like that sort of like dry, soft, perfect safe ice or or safe snow uh, with like the soft fluffy edges and then the more stressed she's getting the harsher it gets like you said Mm. and it's and that's and I think that's that actually shows in the visuals of what the snow looks like like where they're actually copying what it looks like in real life as the snow changes depending on its consistency Mm. and the fact that that it's snow as well is snow and ice fundamentally are water and if there is water particularly vast quantities of water in a story look for where it parallels people's emotional state because that's what water represents it should flow when it's ice it can't it's tied into that uh the beware the frozen heart thing but it's this idea that it's like ice and snow don't have a stake in this they don't care. And it's similar to Elsa's powers where it's like there's nothing inherently good or bad about what's involved about the powers or the ice or the snow that what the entire whether or not ice and snow is dangerous, life saving or, you know, useful or harmful is entirely how people interact with it. And that's the same about her powers. And it's the same about her emotions and the parents failure to interact with her emotions correctly causes 
all of this. It's it's like setting off an avalanche. Elsa? Do you wanna build a snowman? Come on, let's go and play. I never see you anymore. Come out the door. It's like you've gone away. We used to be best buddies. And now we're not. I wish you would tell me why. Do you want to build a snowman? It doesn't have to be a snowman. Oh, wait, Okay, bye. And build a snowman Or ride our bike around the halls I think some company's overdue I've started talking to the pictures on the walls Hang in there, Joan It gets a little lonely All these empty rooms Just watching the hours tick by Elsa, please, I know you're in there. People are asking where you've been. They say have courage, and I'm trying to. I'm right out here for you. Just let me in. We only have each other. It's just you and me. What are we gonna do? Do you want to build a snowman? Can y'all imagine this movie without... Do you want to build a snowman? This that song being in there because it almost wasn't <laughs> like this is one of those songs that was like out of the movie till the very last second, which which is fascinating because it's a super iconic and b like so much more integral to the storytelling than like um, uh, first time in forever. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you think about what the snowman, Olaf, what he represents in this is a state of complete naivety. He doesn't even know what he is. He thinks he can go and sit on a beach. 
Yeah. I, oh, oh, man. Well, <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh, man, I, 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 I should explain real quick to, uh, for the audience. The entire reason I'm here and interested in this movie is because I've had to defend this movie to a shocking number of my friends. All male. Read into that what you will. But um, I have found this movie is so tremendously technically well made as as a movie, as a visual art form. And very specifically what it's so good at uh, to the point where I, I was talking with my professor friend about teaching this in a class about foreshadowing. This movie I actually think is on par with like Fight Club and Sixth Sense for how it does foreshadowing is as a visual written and like verbal medium and setting up a twist that it's like you're not going to notice this stuff until the second time around and it's it's done this is how you do foreshadowing that's how good this movie is there are a couple of little details in the song that are actually of no particular uh, import to the uh, greater film but and these will be on those rotten little easter egg videos all over youtube but they're just three things that i noticed uh, one is that there's a trifecta of the swing by jean honor fragonard which if you remember was their touchstone for what tangled should look like so the disney style that we have now stemmed from this one painting so there's a bit where uh anna is swinging on like a a, a wooden plank like it's a it's a window washing rig or something like that mm-hmm. uh, and then uh she, when she goes into the room full of all the paintings the swing is to her left and i was like ah oh, they're showing it like directly there and then she walks right past it and actually in fact then she like jumps past it and like is sort of silhouetting the actual uh, maiden at that point. So it's like, right, okay, so we're really, really paying homage to the swing here. You also see very, very briefly Rapunzel and Eugene in the bottom left-hand corner, just after uh, the first time in Forever. Uh, they're like approaching yeah, as... she opens the doors. Yeah, they're approaching as wedding guests. And I noted that uh, Rapunzel has very short brown hair at that point. Coronation guests, not wedding guests. C- sorry, sorry. I'm th- I was thinking of Tangled Ever After the Wedding with the... Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, there's an uh, a, a animated show called uh, Tangled Ever After where Rapunzel, in the first episode, uh, gets her long, luxurious golden hair straight back again because of some black spiked rocks that are enchanted. And that would somewhat seem to be contradicted by this bit and... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd like to think that the canon divides in two, and because uh, I mean, in the, uh, the the Tangled Ever After cartoon, they killed Pascal, so I don't want anything to do with that. If you're desperate, why would you to kill Pascal? A, a series that reflects Rapunzel as we think of her with the long hair, just set it before she gets freed from the tower. Nah, I, I, I think it's like I, I'm, I'm sure it's good, but it's not something I want to watch. But also there's, uh, and, and this will lead us on to Hans, um, we saw another film last week uh, called Beautiful Creatures that came out kind of like just as the wave of uh, Twilight-style films had already crested and begun to subside. And it didn't do very well at all financially, but it's pretty good. It's uh, it's sort of set in uh, Savannah, the, the uh, sort of the very hot part of Louisiana with a sort of those beautiful eaves hanging from the trees. Um and it's very sort of midnight in the garden of good and evil evocative it's about a boy played by that Enrenrich guy who played Han Solo and didn't do a fantastic Alden job of it Alden Enrenrich who plays him much like he does here just as this sort of sweet charming affable guy who falls in love with a witch uh, but that's not what was interesting Emma Thompson's in this film 
as the villain, and she is great fun. And she is having the time of her life uh, being a villain with scope to her. But she has one line which made me go, that's way better than this material deserves. Love is a spell created by mortals to give their women something to play with instead of power. And she's being very dismissive of love because she doesn't feel or understand it. But from certain perspectives, you could actually look at at love being something that is very much pawned off onto women to say, you are very interested in this. And that comes across in how Anna is so immediately ready to meet the man of her dreams at this. I mean, she even sings about him uh, at this uh, uh, coronation party. Like she just can't wait to see him and meet him and knows that as soon as she does meet him, she's going to fall in love. Do you know what's really fascinating? That line has a brother. Mm-hmm. First you get the money, then you get the power, <laughs> then you get the women. So Emma Thompson Men and Tony Montana. Chasing power and, and playing with that are doing so, ostensibly, according to Tony Montana, to get The love. women. Oh. So they're both... Tr- I, ca- I can't, I can't, I can't even. Basically, with this. everybody wants love, but they don't want to admit it, so they'll settle for power. Right. Um. <laughs> well, they want the power because it attracts love. I think when Tony Montana says, then you get the women, he doesn't mean. No, no, no. Then I know you he get love. Because what Tony Montana wants is love. He hasn't got a soul. He's a creature and not a beautiful one. No, but that's the point. Within toxic masculinity, that's what's ingrained. It's not that what what people who feel that way are desperate deep down inside for some kind of connection, and sex is kind of an echo of that connection. Okay, how about this? When. I get all the power, I can have any woman and make her do all the disgusting things I want her to. That's not love. Uh, But I can convince all of these women that they want love so that they won't try and get the power and stop me from getting the power so I can have these women do disgusting things for me. Ultimately, love doesn't come into it for the men seeking power in this scenario. No, but my my point kind of is if everybody could learn to, like, share the love... If we could just love each other... share the power, then everything would be a whole lot nicer. Wouldn't it just... (laughs) Anyway, mm, I on. never would have guessed this is where this episode would go, but I am here for it. <laughs> <laughs> the window is open, so's that door. I didn't know they did that anymore. Who knew we owned a thousand salad plates? For years I've roamed these empty halls. Why have a ballroom with no balls? Finally, they're There'll be actual real life people. It'll be totally strange. But wow, am I so ready for this change? Cause for the first time in forever, there'll be music, there'll be light. For the first time in forever, I'll be dancing through the night. Don't know if I'm elated or gassy. But I'm somewhere in that zone Cause for the first time in forever I won't be alone I can't wait to meet everyone What if 
I meet that one? Tonight, imagine me gown and all, fetchingly draped against the wall, the picture of sophisticated grace. Ooh, I suddenly see him standing there, a beautiful stranger, tall and fair. I want to stuff some chocolate in my face. But then we laugh and talk all evening, which is totally bizarre. Nothing like the life I've led so far. For the first time in forever, there'll be magic, there'll be fun. For the first time in forever, I could be noticed by someone. And I know it is totally crazy to dream I'd find romance. But for the first time in forever At least I've got a chance Don't let them in Don't let them see Be the good girl you always have to be Conceal Don't feel Put on a show Make one wrong move And everyone will know But it's only for today It's only for today It's agony to wait Tell the guards to open up The gate Um, Prince Hans seems to be too good to be true, but it's Disney and his performance is earnest, so many of us just let it slide, hoping that he was everything he appeared. Love is an Open Door is once again packed with information, visual, audio. What did you spot in and around this sequence, especially as it applies to foreshadowing the real lying bastard that Hans is? Oh boy. <laughs> so this is the first wave of me me realizing how good the cinematography and directing in this movie is the opening two lines of love is an open door tell you everything you need to know about hans and it's the it's literally the first two lines in the first two shots and there's more of it in the in the song but i'm just going to point out these two for now so the opening line is anna sings uh all my life has been a series of doors in my face and suddenly i bump into you um, she talks about herself. She talks about him. She talks about her life. She talks about their relationship. There's a giant door in the center of the frame that she slams and then turns to him. He responds with, I know, cause I've been searching my whole life to find my own place. And maybe it's the party talking or the chocolate, chocolate fondue. fondue. One, he never mentions her. So that's warning. Number one, two, 
uh, I'm going to use a term that uh, uh, Lauren used a while back uh, called mise-en-scene, which is whatever is on the sh- whatever is on the screen at any given moment is there for a very specific reason. This also applies to what is not on the screen. When he sings that line, the camera cuts to him, and it immediately cuts Anna out of the shot. She is not even on his mind while he's singing this phrase, um, because he's not. She's not in the frame. What is in the frame, centered, is Arendelle. And he turns and gestures to it lovingly. And as he said, I've been coming to find my own place. As we know from the end of the movie, that's what he actually cares about. And that's why it's center of the frame. And that's what he's singing. Like, he he devotes time to mentioning it. She is already gone from his mind. And it was just those two shots in sequence are, congratulations, you now know everything you need to know about Hans and their relationship. That's so good. Yeah. (laughs) It's so powerful and it keeps going throughout the rest of the song um interrupt me whenever you guys have a thing but so one is part of part of what made me fall in love with this movie was this is the only time i have personally ever seen foreshadowing done in a song like not just in a song not just the text of the song the way the song is written and performed is foreshadowing he offers basically nothing throughout this song he just sort of echoes her or says a bunch of blank statements that can be interpreted the way she needs to interpret them. But also more importantly, he never, he doesn't start the song. She does. And he follows along. Even in the chorus, the same thing happens. She does the love is an open door. And then he goes, Oh, okay. We're singing door. And then jumps in like on the beat. He knows his cues, but he's letting her fill in what he fill in the answer for him. So he knows what to say, which is, the same thing with the it's crazy the way we finish each other's and she says sandwiches and he goes that's, that's what, what I was going to say, say. <laughs> she could have said anything there and his response would have been the same because exactly. it, it's not important what he says it's important that he backs her up that like yeah we're totally in sync here and as the song goes on he gets a little more and more bold a little more and more daring because he's getting more and more information out of her and understands how to play her he's cold reading her throughout the song exactly Exactly. He's been doing it since the very first moment. He literally states that at the end of the movie, that he just read her immediately. Like, that idea of, like, love is an open door and she is an open book. Um, and, like, it, it even goes so far as at the at the end of the song, there's that little cute bit where he holds up his hands to, like, frame the moon and she finishes the, the action with the heart, to make it a heart. But ultimately, like... Like, I don't think he knew she was going to do that, and she's the one turning it into a romantic gesture. If you take her gesture out, he's actually just kind of, like, putting a cage around it, almost like what he plans to do to her. I want the moon on a stick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's – this, again, I was so blown away as I started noticing this, and this this is why I I feel like this movie is, like – it's bizarre to me that the pe- that some people don't think this movie is good. I can understand not liking this movie, but it's bizarre to me when people are like, yeah, the movie's not good. No, this movie is a technical masterpiece out like literally using cinema language Orson Welles put down in things like Citizen Kane. This is literally why movies are an art form, and it's because of shots like this. Well, if nothing else, even if you don't pick up on the foreshadowing that eventually becomes who Hans really is, the fact that he is a... Is wet mop too strong a term to use? A bit bland. A bit bland, yeah. The the fact that he walks in here and is set up ostensibly to be the romantic lead, but the way he's acting and the way he's presented and the importance that he brings to this particular relationship is so 
obviously minimal as to make it immediately obvious that you need to be alert to the fact that this guy is not who he seems to be. You don't necessarily have to pick up on the fact that he turns out to be the villain, but just the fact that he is not the romantic hero that he's being positioned as already tells you that this film is going to go somewhere different. Yeah, no, and that, that, that's I, I think that's what's so fascinating about his character is not that he's necessarily a deconstruction of the prince love interest, but that he is honestly a warning to most young girls of like, there are people like this who exist. Mm -hmm. They look like us. They act like us. They're actually really charming and really good at acting like us. And they are absolutely monsters. And and Anna is so vulnerable to it because she's had this isolation that's, that's, you know, gone through her entire life since she wasn't able to, interact with her sister anymore who she obviously adored like i said she's an extrovert she needs people she needs companionship and she hasn't had it if you look at some of the things that that happen after it's become pretty obvious that this is her her deep desire for human contact that's caused her to grab at the first thing that walks through the door well maybe not quite the first thing it's not the duke of wesselton but wesselton (laughs) (laughs) who by the way was going to be the original villain wasn't he he was yeah i think so um but there are the little moments in the song where she does things with hans that are echoes of things that she did with elsa when they were children they skate on the polished floors that's an echo of when uh, Elsa turned the hallway into an ice rink for yeah. her. Um, the And the line about say goodbye to the pain of the past, we don't have to feel it anymore. It's, again, that whole thing about, you know, the, those emotions from when she was a child. By taking away her memories, they've almost locked off that part of her emotions as much as they have for Elsa. And this is is just an opportunity to feel something. He could be anybody at this stage. Almost anybody, not the Duke of Wesselton. Wesselton, <laughs> but he could be almost anybody at this point. Isn't there a Duke Wesselton in Zootopia? Uh, yes, yes that's, and it's also played by Alan Tudyk, and that's the joke. <laughs> Sorry, I can just say that last sentence again. He could have been anybody. He could have been anybody at this point, and she would have grabbed at him. It also, again, going back to the visual language, they don't make a point of it. But while he's going around wooing her, charming her, and again, like you said, repeating all the things from her childhood and doing all the things she wants to do, he's still keeping her on the grounds of the castle. He's not letting her go out. He's not letting her explore. He's keeping her confined to the like this very lovely castle, but he's not like pushing her to do anything new. And also, again, it's that thing of like, he plans to keep her locked here. Like she's a trophy to him. Hmm. This is one of those songs that, on first viewing, I didn't appreciate nearly as much as I have like over time. It, at the, I remember first watching it and feeling like, okay, there's been a lot of songs in the first 20 minutes of this, and this is one that I that that I could have skipped out on. But it, this one rewards rewatching <laughs> in a way that even even a lot of the other songs in the film don't. And I do kind of like, even though it feels a little discordant aesthetically with some of the rest of what the film's been doing to this point the really pop music-y sound of this one is so perfect for where Anna is at as a, just as a character and as a person right now, just sort of a shallow, very old Disney-esque love. It is so right for what she, for where she is. And I love how much you can appreciate how slimy Prince Hans is the more you know about what is happening later. If I tell you that I was an 18 year old goth, 
at the same time as my sister was a 16-year-old pop enthusiast, and it will probably tell you an awful lot about why I like this film so much. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was also going to say uh, the, um, uh, the, the fact that it's like it's this pop song that's that basically it's exactly what you would expect out of a Disney musical. That's the point. He's playing into what she and since she's our viewpoint character, she's playing into what she and the audience expect out of this moment. Like literally she declared this is what she expects out of this moment. And so he's feeding her what she wants, not what she needs. And that's, that's actually like the big, again, that's one of the big messages of this movie is the difference between what you think you want and what you actually need. And there's a lot of subtlety in that subversion too, which is what just makes it all the better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next question, um, uh, which Disney films are they critiquing with Lovers and Open Door? Because what's, what's if it's really in, in Elsa's reaction to that. You just met him, and Kristoff comes up with this as well. Uh, it, it seems like everyone jumped on an immediate, ah, this is Disney finally ribbing themselves. Because Shrek came out in 2001. And Shrek's like, you know, Duloc is It's a Small World, and ah, look at Disney. And it's, it's Katzenberg getting his, you know, jabs in at Disney. And everyone loved, stuff. everyone loved Shrek because it was like poking fun at Disney at long last. And um, it took a long time for Disney to, to sort of like gear up to actually doing that themselves. Enchanted was a measure towards this. And actually the, uh, uh, the trailer for that, I originally made, I dismissed the whole film because I was like, oh God, you're just doing that. But you're Disney, so it, it, it feels like you're making fun of yourself. And it felt like the... Because remember, at that stage, Disney had gone all crap. It was pre-Princess and the Frog. This is the film with Adina Menzel in it. And, uh, but it was more foreshadowing of this, because it's actually very earnest, whilst being wise and canny as well. Uh, but then Princess and the Frog kind of did the, a, a very similar thing about, you know, their princess is very not like all the other princesses uh, that have, have been before. But if you think about it, like, despite the fact that they people the Disney princesses with all kind of Mulans and Pocahontases, Pocahontai, uh, the, really there have only been a couple of actual Disney princesses. And a couple of them, like, were, like, like Snow White was the daughter of a king. Cinderella was the daughter of just a merchant, and Beauty and the Beast, again, uh, daughter of an inventor. Uh, so uh, Ariel, obviously daughter of the king of the sea, but marries a prince. There have really, and Jasmine, obviously daughter of a sultan, but there have really only been a few actual straight-up princesses, which these two are. There is, though, something in the marriage element of it, because if you are not a princess and you marry a prince, you become a princess, but you can never be queen. Yeah, but they're critiquing some of their previous films, but they're not throwing all of Disney under the bus and going, ah, yeah, because, of course, all of these girls just immediately fall in love and go all starry-eyed as soon as they meet this guy. There's a couple of key ones which they're actually honing in on with this. Would you guys like to furnish us with with which ones in particular? Sleeping Beauty seems to be a one. Yes. She's, She's singing, and then he turns up singing. And then they start dancing. This is very much a much more poppy version of I Know You, I Walked With You Once Upon a Dream. Yep. That's it, Once Upon a Dream. I'm thinking Dream a Little Dream. No, it's not that. One song, I have but one song. The weird singing creep in Snow White, most definitely. (laughs) Prince, what's his name? Is he just Charming? No, Charming. Might have just been The Prince. I don't think he had a name. Yeah, Charming was Cinderella. And obviously, with that, we've we've gone through our whole like 
there's there's things wrong with Cinderella, specifically in regards to their relationship and his reaction to her leaving, which are genuinely frightening. And they correct almost all of them in the Lily James Cinderella uh, from a, a few years later, which interestingly has the Frozen Fever short on it. So they, they this was another step in the right direction of like, like let's give these princesses some more agency and make these relationships more textured. Mm. I think certainly Snow White, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty are the, are the classic trio. A little bit of Little Mermaid as well, in terms of like bit, she falls yeah. in love with uh, Eric before she even really meets him. She's like, he's very handsome. Kira Knightley was recently mouthing off, saying, I don't like the idea of... Uh, because she was being interviewed regarding the Nutcracker. I don't like the idea that, that uh, Ariel gives up her voice for a man. We shouldn't be doing that. And um, she doesn't. I think we talked about this on our, our podcast. Ariel desperately wants to be human she's not giving up her voice for uh, prince eric he's just a great bonus she wants legs she's giving up part of herself whatever you want to read into that to get mm. this to pass through this doorway and become something that she's always wanted to be that's not just for a guy and it's it, like the little moment is not really powered by ariel being all goo goo eyed over prince eric it's just that Ursula places that particular caveat, the proviso, on the spell because she's like, I can mess with this girl, make it all about love. That's not Ariel's decision. She's not like, I must have Prince Eric. In Kira Knightley's defence, though, she was talking specifically about letting her daughter, who is only three, mm -hmm. watch these films. And she was talking about how the overt message... There's subtleties that an older child might be able to understand better, and when her daughter's older, she might be able to explain them to her. But at three, she's not going to. Really? Gonna see so you're not going to let her see the Little Mermaid at the exact time when the Little Mermaid's probably going to be the best? Well, obviously, I don't think that because Lyra watched the Little Mermaid at that age, <laughs> and she couldn't even speak English at that point. But the I think we mentioned this on the show when when Ariel gets to her. moment where Ariel reaches up. Wish I could be. This made Lyra cry in a way that transcended language. Part of that world. It's not Ariel giving up her voice for a man, it's Ariel giving up her voice so that she can literally and metaphorically stand on her own because it's also her getting out from under her father and then it's just the lesson of the movie is you shouldn't have to give up your voice to do that you can do you can do that anyway so what you're saying is kira knightley should listen to our show and we tell her like it is and then she'd be like oh i didn't get that before <laughs> and then she should tell 10 friends and those 10 friends should tell 10 friends i actually really also, like kira knightley she's a good actress yeah. also i've got a series of audio dramas i can point her mm. to She's also a good person and very ethical. So, yeah, just this, this is more of a, a thing of just addressing a widely regarded oversimplification of The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. I do hear a lot of those. Yeah. You do actually well, have a good point now that you raise it, though, that the, there, when you actually look at the like, Disney animation library, there are shockingly few princess stories in there and even, even fewer that are in that old classic fell in love with you once upon a dream thing. Mm. I, I guess it's just that Disney has made that particular story and fantasy such a core pillar of their brand yeah. of their animation brand for a century that it's well, almost 
that uh, people think when they see Disney, or at least it used to be that way, you think princess stories like this, That's even the, if there are really only like four or five of them. Yeah, it's well, not got, the stories, it's the curtains, it's the pyjamas, it's the lunchboxes, it's the it's the merchandise that permeates absolutely everything. There have been more Iron Man Disney films than princess <laughs> Disney films. <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, true. Well, and to- Tony Stark is the prettiest princess, but... Well, he um, certainly is. The, it's that it's it's also the thing if you've got to think about the timeline. Snow White, Cinderella, and uh, Sleeping Beauty all come out fairly close to each other, and that's actually all you get. Last I checked, for about forty years, yeah. because all the other ones come out between nineteen ninety and two thousand during the Renaissance. Yeah. And while there's more of them there, but like it's that thing of people spent ge- literal generations only knowing the Disney princess story. It's only recently that they started not having them all be princesses, not having that same kind of story. And all like as we just like described, all three of those original stories are pretty similar in their treatment of the the relationship between prince, princess, and you know, women as a flag, that that whole thing. But yeah, those literally existed for forty years almost in a vacuum. Yeah. But the subversion of that in these these sort of early numbers is not even just the the elements of it that are done in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. The fact that you have Elsa responding quite sensibly to Mm. Anna by saying, no, you can't marry a guy you just met. That's not happening. That's a sensible thing for her to say. And later on, when Anna says, look, it's me that pushed her. I need to go and talk to her. I need to apologise. We need to work through this. That's a sensible thing for her to say. This film is full of moments where young women make good choices and right decisions. And the reason it goes wrong is because other people get in their way. Mm. And this is uh, in the wake of uh, their good parents making shitty decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Out of fear. Okay, can I just say something crazy? I love crazy. All my life has been a series of doors in my face. And then suddenly I bump into you. I was thinking the same thing. Because, like, I've been searching my whole life to find my own place. And maybe it's the party talking or the chocolate fondue. (laughs) But with you. Yes. 
so so yeah, actually, technically, it's a two-pronged not plan of attack, but it is a two-pronged plan on Disney's part to challenge the love at first sight trope that they've been dealing with very profitably for many many decades. With the first part being, you can't just fall in love with this guy. I only just met him. The second part comes later, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's a it's a definite one-two punch going right. So if this is potentially a serious oversimplification of what actually happens in real life, then what is true love? And we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah, so. and I, I, sorry, quick hot take. I would actually argue that this movie is a lo- not so much Disney ribbing itself or like deconstructing itself so much as it's almost like a maturation of itself. It's because a lot of those same tropes still play out in this movie. Like she still, and like she still ends up getting a guy and it is still technically someone she met very recently. They just decide to go slow about it. But it's that thing where it's like, it's more about the, it's not this movie, especially with Olaf, Olaf almost is almost the theme of this story where it's, it's not that it's not okay to want these things or desire these things. It's that you just have to be, smart about it and that's really what this movie like drills into anna over the course of how long is the runtime it's like 97 minutes something i forget and one hundred it's actually a hundred okay um but over the course of the movie it really just drills into her it's like you weren't wrong for wanting love you weren't wrong for wanting to connect with your sister you weren't you know that's not the problem here the problem is think about it because (laughs) do unlike your parents and think about your emotional response first we're not going to be able to get this done in an hour and a half, are we? <laughs> uh, that was really Thank ambitious you. of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I pushed back other plans because I figured I was like, all right, we're doing a minimum of two hours. Right. Well, let's not slacken up and langer. Let It Go is the centerpiece of the movie and the touchstone for the character of Elsa. It is one of the biggest emotional button pushes in Disney history. Would you like to elaborate on why this song and sequence means so much to so many and also... Why some people hate it. I can tell you why it means so much to me. Okay. Which is a fairly reasonable place to start. But I we think. need to be broader than simply yeah. this is no, our no, no, personal absolutely. take. But, yeah. but I think the what we've already talked about, the, the fact that Elsa has this intensity about her that she is taught she must hide because it will hurt other people. I am going to be generalizing here obviously i'm not saying that this is the experience of every little girl but specifically girls who are smart girls who have strong emotions girls who when their kids get angry easily anybody who has a manifestation of themselves and who they are when they're being authentic that clashes with the stereotype of what a good, sweet, quiet, calm, kind little girl is supposed to be and therefore gets told, hide that, you know, we love you, but that part of you doesn't fit with the template that we'd like to see in the world. So just, you know, keep that on the down low. There comes a point when you can't keep it on the down low anymore. And that Elsa gets this power ballad. This is not so much an I want song as an I am song. And oh my God, it blasts your brain out. It, I, I still, 
I don't know how many times we've seen this film. I still cannot watch this sequence without bursting into floods of tears. I cannot sing this song because my voice cracks by the end of the second line. I can't do it. It is physically impossible. Just because it is so meaningful in terms of the message being that 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 core of who you are no matter how much you've tried and no matter how much you've been obliged to repress it and compress it and make sure that nobody gets even a hint of who you are inside it's still there and it will not because there will come a time when you fear that that is gone that there is not a you left anymore because you've spent so long sitting on it and this says no, doesn't matter. You are still there. And as soon as you get a window, let it go. <laughs> and that is why it absolutely bowls me over. Gentlemen. I was so happy and not at all surprised hearing that this film was restructured around this song. Because it feel even as you're watching, it feels like this is this is the core from which the rest of this came from. This is, this defined what this movie is. And it sure did (laughs) like the song was everywhere, which I think that's probably about the only reason that some people are irked by it. Something, anything that becomes as pervasive in popular culture as this song was for a while if you can't avoid something, if something has become so popular that you can't avoid it, it's difficult. Not it, it would be like minions. Yes. Yeah, like minions. <laughs> it would have been something. It would have been something you'd be happy to have ignored and live and let live. But the world keeps throwing it at you, and you hear it or see it everywhere. It if it's not something you like, or it's if it's not something you love. I guess it can kind of instill a bitterness of like, why won't you go away? Leave me alone. Or <laughs> indeed, I, have no, I don't feel that way. But, yeah, I was or, yeah say, it's, Disney keep doing this, and I'm not even necessarily saying that they have to stop because it's clearly a marketing strategy that works for them. But they create something which is truly amazing, and then they drown everybody in it. <clears throat> it's not any less amazing because they've drowned everybody in it, but. Anybody who didn't love it with a devotedness that is bordering on unseemly will at some point go, ugh, really? Again? I've, I've listened to a lot of uh, interviews with, uh, with folks, uh, with various crew folk about this movie, and there are three things that I really love about listening to the crew talk about this song in particular. The first one is I love hearing everyone, like I said, everyone say that this was the song that cracked the movie and made it all like, come together. Second, I love listening to Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez talk about it because those two, like, I don't know if you've seen those two talk like in interviews, but they are precious. This husband and wife couple, like they'll start kind of playing through the song a little bit and, and she'll be saying like, and he figured out this whole stinger bit right here. And then, and then I came up with this line and that was great. And then he came up with this part, right? They're, they're adorable. The third thing, and probably my favorite thing, I love hearing everybody in the Disney studio talk for minutes at a time about this Idina Menzel performance, like featuring this character who has been made into a villain who is coming into her own and slowly abandoning her fear and experimenting with a new identity and becoming the enemy of her home kingdom and doing so, but finding freedom and joy and just being herself finally. And the entire time they talk about it, nobody slips up and accidentally utters the words wicked or defying gravity at any point. (laughs) 
It's amazing. It's possible that this song came to be entirely organically, and that and that is the story everybody tells. It's probably the truth. But it's really hard to listen to this amazing song, sung by Idina Menzel, and not assume that somebody at Disney definitely saw Wicked one day and came back to work the next day like, guys, I have an idea. Because <laughs> well, it's also, to even drive it home, it's it's literally the same emotional beat, which you guys pointed it out in Tangled. There's a moment where um, Rapunzel, in throwing off Mother Gothel, has a moment where it's not about realizing who she is. It's about realizing what she's not. And that's what this moment is for Elsa. And that's what that moment is for Elphaba in Wicked as well. It's the realization of, I have been shoved from every direction into being this thing. And every, and trying to be that thing has caused me living hell for my, like for, for my entire life, my 20 something years of life. And now I'm, having this tremendous epiphany about I'm not those things. And that is so freeing. And it's also like part of why I love this song personally is because sure. The lyric, the lyrics mention it's like, you know, I'm that perfect girl is gone, you know, be the good girl you have to be. But it's also, I think it's actually really powerful for dealing with like toxic masculinity. This idea of like, because her powers and her freedom is complete is completely tied to her ability to safely be whoever she wants, whoever she needs to be, to let her emotions out, to feel fear and joy and freedom and all these things. And to not be ashamed of them, to not be afraid of feeling something like literally the line is concealed. Don't feel not don't be afraid not don't feel something specific. It's don't feel anything. Be a robot, be cold. No, well, pun absolutely intended by the creators, but this idea of like, it's, it's so powerful because it's, it's about shedding all the things that are holding you back from being you. And that's, and that's, that's tied into the song's lyrics too, about where it's like, my soul is spiraling in, uh, 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 frozen frozen fractals. Yeah. Frozen fractals all around that idea that this ice castle is, finally her getting to extend herself into the world around her and not have to worry about the consequences. Absolutely. And that, and I think that's one reason, one of the things that we've, we've talked about going into is why did this have such a reach? Why were there so many people that felt a, a core of this really means something to me? What Elsa is expressing at this point is every suppressed element of identity and desire and experience that so many people have felt at some point. Anybody who's got a sexuality that they've been told not to express, anybody who's got a gender identity that they've been told not to express, anybody who's got a a perspective on the world that they've been told not to express, anybody who's got um, an ethnicity that they've been told is not acceptable in the environment that they've grown up in, anyone who, who really feels strongly about a a political stance or a a piece of media. Anybody who really wanted to talk about uh, a story that they loved, a film that they loved, and in the world that they were in, no matter how tiny that world was, people said, you can't like that, that's not for you. This says fuck off. And I think that's what really got to the the heart of why so many people grabbed it and ran with it and went yes it doesn't matter who Elsa is at this point she's me and if you look at the visuals of how this plays out as well when she starts building the um the palace 
to begin with, everything's fluffy and rough and, and it's it's not moulded properly and she's going through all the stages that she should have gone through when she was 8 and 9 and 12 and 16 but she does it all in one number and gradually she gets to the point where she has now the skill to use her power to make exactly what she wants it to do but there are still things that she doesn't know and that whole you know I don't know how to unfreeze things again there are always going to be bits that she still needs to develop and she still needs to work on and that's why it's not suddenly a magic flick of the button and now all of a sudden she's perfect so one of the things that people hated was that uh, this song meant so much to seemingly to everyone else and and it was like well i i I don't see it like you know this doesn't apply to me first of all then congratulations on the world accepting everything about you well done must be nice being a white male (laughs) must be nice being a white male who's able to voice whatever he wants whenever he wants without fear well done Mm -hmm. And if they aren't, and maybe they just don't realize that, I really hope they do, like, that this song does eventually click for them. Mm. Like, they do have that experience in their life where they suddenly get it. <laughs> I ha- There's one thing that I've been puzzling on for a while with this, like, with this song in relation to the reprise of First Time and Forever later. And I don't, I don't know for sure how I feel about it, so I kind of wanted to ask and get you guys' opinions. Thematically... How do you feel about the way the reprise sort of takes this moment of liberation that Elsa finally has that is joyful and happy and healthy and what she desperately needs? And then later the story, she is later told her freedom has is killing everybody, like that her awakening is destroying everything else that she's being selfish for being herself yeah or, or that like just the, I know that technically like you can argue a lot here that like the the event that began just the literal snowballing of Arendelle was like Elsa being afraid and cast out before she had her full awakening. But Elsa seems to take it in that reprise song as I actually can't be free. Oh no. Like this, this, I was wrong. This is what, this is what I, what have I done? I think what Dan's point is there is that while the let it go song wonderfully parallels everybody who has something that they have to keep hidden about themselves. The specifics of the movie tie in very directly with something which might not be analogous at all with any of that. That's kind of a weakness of the film. Potentially. Yes. I think there could, it could be explained. And that's why I kind of wanted to raise it here, because I've not found a, an explanation that satisfies me yet, but I feel like there is one potentially mm-hmm. in there. It's kind of like how the X-Men originally started as a metaphor for racism and became kind of a, a, a metaphor for all kinds of people who felt socially outcast, specifically in the 80s, uh, people who uh, were uh, discovering a whole underground subculture of, uh, of, of LGBTQ. However... That doesn't necessarily apply when some mutants can blow up entire buildings, and it's like, honestly, just being gay isn't that dangerous. The well, the analog just kind of falls apart there. Yeah, well, in 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 Frozen's case, I actually think it's more a, it's it's the tale of moderation. Of Elsa was kept at one extreme. Let it go is her exploring the other st- extreme and how liberating it is. Anna is weirdly the voice of moderation coming in to be like, hey, it's really like because because that that's what really interests me about that reprise. Anna's 
song, Anna's actions are not to show up and judge the ice castle. She isn't like, ew, what is this? You know, oh my god, this is horrifying. Like, she's actually just like, oh, okay, this is you. I'm fine with this being you. Anna is fine with Elsa expressing herself. She's just trying to divorce Elsa from this idea that it's like, you you can only do this in isolation. She's trying to, she's trying to communicate to Elsa. It's like, you can do this back at home with the rest of us. And it's more about the idea of like, so yeah, you were at one extreme, you're now at this other extreme. The answer lies in the middle of, yes, be yourself in consideration of other people. Thank you, because that's exactly what I was thinking. And because I, I, I wanted to ask what exactly it is that, that didn't quite sit for you, Dan, because the that reprise I love. It's perfect because the the idea that having had this sudden freedom you go to an extreme is one that I recognize a lot and it's it's the red shoes story again the idea that somebody who's grown up not being allowed to be who they are when the reins come off they will be who they are to such an extreme that they end up going down a path that actually could lead them somewhere dangerous maybe not like freeze your entire town dangerous but if you've been told your whole life um say for example you've been brought up in a very religious environment and told sex is evil i can almost guarantee you that at some point you are going to turn into the town bike and and I, again i'm generalizing i'm well aware of the fact that there are a lot of people who grew up in that environment and didn't end up going down that route but there will be a point when what you're hungry for you get a taste of and you can't stop and hopefully there will be somebody even if it's just a part of yourself who plays the role that anna does and comes and says, as you as you pointed out, Spencer, without judgment, I love you. What you're doing is you, and it's wonderful. But here's some areas where you might want to try and dial it back a little bit, because it, it could potentially cause harm. I think that's a good read. And another one that that came up more recently when I was when Carrie and I were talking about this after watching it. If you enter if you take this sort of a theme of Elsa's liberation and then intersect it with the true love core of what this where this movie is going the idea maybe it's not even that elsa needs to rein in who she is because she's gone too wild with it it's that have like you should not have to be alone in isolation as yourself like come back like the the healthiest version of this picture is where you are yourself but with the rest like at home with the rest of us mm. and that's your your live the, the healthy like life that what we get at the end of the film is with Elsa herself at home where like where her family is where her people are that accepted that is what the healthy scenario is and that is not Elsa's fault that it's not Elsa's fault that her liberation has caused damage it's just that an, a healthy equilibrium of her and her integration into society as herself has not been achieved yet no and it's it's she's not trying to freeze Arendelle she does it because she literally doesn't know she can which is again a fault of the parents for not helping her find out that's a thing she could do the yeah. shackle the shackles here are the secrecy the fact that they had to keep it a secret <sighs> when she says well they all know no, well now they know now they know means that it is possible that they can reintegrate her but that could never happen if she was kept a secret it's 
the fact that she had to keep that concealed, that caused her to build her whole body into a prison. And if you look at what triggers those outbursts, it's it's the same when she's small as it is here. It's anxiety. It's the it's the in the the original situation. <clears throat> it's the fear that Anna's going to fall and she panics and she can't move fast enough and then she aims wrong. And then here, it's that she can't cope with Anna telling her that things have gone wrong and she she didn't do it on purpose. But now she doesn't know what to do about it and kaboom. There was another film that came out in 2013 about uh, where someone was told by their well-meaning but terrible parent, no, no, you've got to conceal this stuff about yourself. And then when they finally came out to the world, there was like 9-11 times 1,000. Man of Steel. Yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was actually more just in shock that I'm like, wait, Man of Steel is that old. Holy crap. I didn't realize that they were <laughs> that they're contemporaries. Yeah. Uh, um, Jonathan Kent, as we've like that. My idea on YouTube for a way brighter Superman story is where one where um, Clark Kent said sod it and saved his stupid father from that tornado and said, you know what, Dad, I'm just going to tell the world I'm Superman and, you know, so be it. Or at least I'm going to come out to the world as Kal-El, not necessarily as Clark Kent, and they're just going to have to take it on the chin rather than repress, conceal, don't feel the whole way through. But you see, Zack Snyder is not the same as the people who made these movies, so he wasn't able to get that message across in anywhere near as delicate or uh, inspiring fashion. So what you're saying is, essentially, if you are responsible for the raising and nurturing of somebody who has immense power in them that you are a little bit scared of, teaching them to handle it well is probably a better route than encouraging them to pretend it's not there. Because if you don't, you're going to get a fortress of solitude. Mm-hmm. One way or another. Yeah. The other Zack Snyder example of this, which I was thinking of when Elsa was building the Ice Palace, is Watchmen. Is Watchmen. Which yeah. he also builds a fortress of solitude on he Mars. Does. Although his is made out of uh, glass, made out of nuclear melted sand. So there's a bit of a difference there. Yes. Well, yeah. And <laughs> I, I actually think, side note, I think this is why... I don't know if this is the right podcast for it, but this is why superhero stories are have been taking off in the past 10 years because it's tapping, tapping into this subconscious understanding that the future generations have access to an incredible amount of power that no one has had before. And the lesson, the lesson of all superhero movies, it, it, again, if you look at them as our modern day myths, our modern day, modern day cautionary tales, the essence of a superhero story is this is how you're supposed to act when you ha- get power. And the villains are the demonstration of how not to do it when you have power. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation, and it looks like queen the wind is howling like this swirling storm inside couldn't keep it in heaven knows i tried don't let them in don't let them see be the good girl you always have to be conceal don't feel don't let them know Now they know Let it go Let it 
Okay, so despite Christoph's serenading his reindeer Sven, who is a thing that isn't a dog but thinks it's a dog, Dan, when did you say that? Because it was, feels like a long time ago. We've we've encountered we're a lot. It of, everywhere. We've encountered a lot of them in animated movies, um, and the upcoming troll song sung at them. Anna and Christoph don't actually have a song together. They have a lot of conversation instead. Why do you think that that might work to this film's benefit? Can the guy playing Christoph not sing? We know he can. Yeah, it's People jo- it's smell Jonathan Groff. better than reindeer. <laughs> well, it's well. Also, it's Jonathan Groff who is the Broadway King George in Hamilton. Uh, okay, then seriously, I take it back. you say the price <laughs> yeah. of my love's the not love a price that you're price willing, that you're willing to, pay. to pay. Awesome. Yeah, that's him. That's him. Awesome. Same guy. I do, however, the ice think... of my love. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that in the writing for um. Uh, let it go when she sings a kingdom of isolation they make it a point to hover on the syllable ice yeah. isolation yeah that was all sorry continue as, as you were ice isolation sorry. Sorry, I, I had a point I, uh, and off. And sorry. No, 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 vanilla no, ice fine. turned up and messed it up <laughs> sorry. no 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 that's it oh, okay. wait, stop stop collaborate and listen I thought you were going to say hammer time um, <laughs> no that's MC Hammer it's a different guy I think one of the reasons why it works for me that Christoph doesn't really sing much is because he doesn't need to. I refer you to Once More With Feeling. Mm-hmm. And the fact that one of the reasons that everybody is singing in that... Don't ask us to do a Buffy show, folks. One of the reasons everybody's singing in that is because they have things that they need to express that they can't say. And the spell on Sunnydale forces them to sing what they're really feeling. Christoph is 
really in touch with how he feels and really comfortable expressing it for the most part. He doesn't need to have that emotional outpouring. Mm. And there are elements of Christoph as well that are potentially appealing to Anna because they are reminiscent of Elsa or an Elsa how she could have been if she'd been brought up to be able to express who she was and accept who she was and have the people around her accept who she was. Both Elsa and Kristoff object to Anna's immediate infatuation with uh, Hans. Absolutely. They're both blonde. They both have an affiliation with ice. They both have an understanding of how it feels to be alone and actually appreciation of how it feels to be alone. But because Kristoff grew up also with no parents, I might add, but surrounded by beings... Well, technically, he had the best parents. Yeah, he had like seven brothers, <laughs> who I'm assuming had seven brides. No? Well, yes. well, no, my argument is just that the trolls are the best parents he, uh, in the movie, so he actually had the best upbringing, even though they kidnap him. But well. Shit, hang on. Uh, uh, sorry. Hans has 12 brothers. Hans has 12 brothers. Christoph okay, so yeah. Christoph has... Trolls. Sorry. I'm so sorry. So he was that kid at the beginning, wasn't he? The, with the... Yes. Christoph? Yeah. Yeah, cr- yeah, Christoph gets... Kit functionally kidnapped by the trolls, but it's all for the best because they're the only competent people in the movie. Jesus. Okay, sorry. What I was doing there was conflating a suspicion I had when I was first watching this film that Hans and Christoph were one and the same. And I was like, he said he had seven brothers. Those are those guys we saw at the beginning. And for some reason, that useless piece of non-information got stuck in my brain. I don't know why <laughs> I thought... very different body shapes. ...that that might be the twist. I thought that they were riffing on Aladdin, as in the whole Prince Ali thing. Mm. And they didn't. And I'm glad they didn't, because uh, uh, they make a fine point with Hans regarding the uh, this, you know, charming, sweet stranger who's saying exactly what you want him to might just be a sociopath. Mm, indeed. Well, but the other thing that this whole Elsa and Kristoff have a lot in common made me really angry about again was the fact that the trolls said, hide her powers. They didn't say, send her to us for an hour every day and we'll teach her how to use them properly, which they could have. Yeah, no, the, the correct answer for how to raise Elsa is to take her in the back, line up a bunch of cans, and basically put her on, a, on an ice, ice power shooting range. Absolutely, and- <laughs> absolutely. Until she is no longer afraid of her powers, and she can actually just do it instinctually, rather than them being equated very specifically yeah. with strong outbursts of anger and fear. Yeah, don't no, do yeah. this thing ever until you're really good at it is the most self-defeating sentence ever. It's like saying, you can have this gun when you learn to shoot with it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And well, and actually, I was making the gun comparison for for a reason because it's that idea of like, yeah, teach her to respect the powers, not fear it, because there there's a difference here. Like, all she, all she needs is a bunch of very very ice themed trigger discipline. Reindeers are better than people. Sven, don't you think that's true? Yeah, people will beat you and curse you and cheat you. Every one of them's bad, except you. Oh, thanks, buddy. But people smell better than reindeers. Sven, don't you think I'm right? That's once again true for all except you. You got me. Let's call it a night. Good night. Don't let the frost bite. In summer, sorry, in summer. Oh boy. In summer, Olaf the snowman very swiftly establishes himself as almost everyone's favorite. Oh, hang on. Before we go to this one, 
Side note, by the way, was this the first like deliberately uh, gay couple that uh, Disney pitched? In that the guy who runs the ski shack or the you know, yes. the store, mm-hmm. uh, when he uh, points to his family who are in the sauna, uh, it appears to be a male partner. Uh, is that the first Disney gay couple on purpose? I know that that infuri- infuriated a lot of the people who hate Let It Go. I actually never noticed that, so Has, I didn't I either. Think when when I saw it this time, I was looking out for it, and the image appears to be a guy about the same age as the chap running the store, a woman about the same age or maybe a little younger, and then a load of kids of varying ages. Yeah. Oh no, actually, she just looks like a teenage girl. So yeah. The the the, the one blonde guy in the middle. Yeah, surrounded by all. Surrounded the kids. by all the kids uh, would suggest also specifically that all the kids have brown hair and the uh, guy has blonde hair. It specifically doesn't say that he's their dad. That's a very deliberate color choice. Mm. If they'd all been like blonde haired then it would have immediately told a very straightforward story, as in this is definitely their natural father. But it gets more complicated and potentially a lot more rich by not having them all look exactly the same. The same as, you know, not necessarily having uh, all of the, uh, the, uh, the, the girl dogs in a boy girl of two different breeds in a cartoon be the same breed as the mother and... Vice versa because for the, that's how the genetics works. Yeah. We'll deal with this when Frozen 2 comes out. People have been rumbling about the possibility that Elsa herself might be gay for a long, long time because obviously a lot of her feeling outcast in this movie is analogous with the LGBTQ experience. So we don't know in my head canon Elsa's gay, at least for the time being. Until I don't they... think you're the only one. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just said lots of people are behind this one. But again, that will infuriate people. And Frozen 2 will potentially make less money because there'll be families going, I ain't taking my kids to see this gay snow woman. Either way, it'll be a gutsy move if Disney actually follow through with it because uh, their uh, gay characters in uh, the Beauty and the Beast uh, live action uh, remake were fun uh, and um, another step, but uh, it needs to be a, a bigger step. <laughs> I, I will actually say that was one of the weird things about watching this with um, my family, specifically my mom, who has a very powerful emotional reaction whenever she watches this movie because mm-hmm. um, she feels very much like she identifies with Elsa so hard from her background, from her the, growing up with a very, very uh, rather than being a, a, a her her parents weren't like well-meaning but bad. Her parents were just actively bad. Um, but she had the thing where she ended the movie. She was like, I don't like that Elsa doesn't end up with a guy of her own. And it was, I get what she's saying. She's saying like, she doesn't like that. Elsa doesn't really have like, like romantic closure, but it's like, but I just, I was just baffled by like, how do you not understand? That's not what her story is about. And she doesn't need that because like, that's not. Elsa still has way more of herself to explore. Exactly. Frankly, having to deal with, somebody else's quirks and needs at this point would be detrimental to that exploration. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's actually like, I think it's one of the movie's strengths that at no point is that even brought up. Cause I think it was uh, Bob Chipman who pointed out like the, the, when they're walking up to the ice castle, Kristoff, because he's infatuated with ice and there's the woman who makes ice. And very specifically, he's admiring the craftsmanship on the staircase. It almost like writes itself where he's like, wow, I've never seen anything. So, and then like Elsa appears and he does the, beautiful you could do that but they don't and i think it's so i'm so like i going into this movie the first time that's what i thought this was going to be is uh anna ends up with hans and Kristoff ends up with elsa i'm so glad that they don't even touch on elsa having a, a romantic relationship because it's like no she needs 
so much more help before she's in a position to do that. Yeah. Because this movie is really emotionally mature regarding relationships, and that's its whole point. Okay. In summer, Olaf, speaking of emotionally mature, the snowman very swiftly establishes himself as almost everyone's favorite. How does he do this, and how does his presence affect the tone and message of the story? Well, he, going back to my whole thing on foreshadowing, he is literally a warning to Anna about, like, uh, regarding Hans. Very specifically, In Summer. In Summer is a song about a childlike infatuation with a thing you have heard of but never experienced and don't understand the danger inherent in it. To the point where it can destroy you if you don't go into it with the like, – if you don't really quickly grasp what is actually at stake here. This is also why at the end of the song, Kristoff is like, I'm going to tell him. And she's like, no, no, no. Preserve that childlike wonder. And th- again, that tells you everything you need to know about their – approach to this topic Kristoff is like no you need to know what you're getting into and she's like no the childlike fantasy is better and it ends up almost destroying her because uh, Olaf's infatuation with Summer is her infatuation with romantic love and I do like the first for Kristoff, it starts out as sort of like a ribbing, like, I'm going to tell him. And she's like, no, don't. <laughs> but then at, at, then as they all walk off, he's like, someone's got to tell him. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, seriously, do you not understand his life is on the line if we don't explain this to him? But I think there's also a hint that he knows. He knows deep down. And when he goes inside to talk to Anna and starts to melt in front of the fire, mm-hmm. he actually says some, some people, people are, are worth melting, melting for. No, and I, I think that's part of why Olaf ends up being such a good character, because he is, I mean, he is quite literally a remnant of Anna and Elsa's past. He's a memory of when things were happier before everything went wrong. He is, you know, the happy childhood childhood memory, and he is that childlike wonder and that childlike optimism Good and bad. Like, he's oblivious to a lot of things, but he also has an under- an intuitive understanding of emotion that, like, that doesn't come from practice. It just comes from, it's like, well, no, because, uh, like, you, you just get something. Like, like a, a sort of child, like, the way children just understand raw emotion, even if they can't explain it. Um, he's He accepts what he is, who he is immediately, and he accepts that it's like, yeah, I'll melt, but it's worth it because this is still something I believe in. And it's one of the, I think, this movie's strongest points. It's not cynical about that childlike wonder and that childlike desire for love or to be loved or to see summer. It's just saying that it's like, yeah, you got to be aware of it, but don't lose it. Don't get rid of it. Don't destroy Olaf. Heed Olaf. He's an extension of and a moving on evolution of Ray in The Princess and the Frog. Ray has a fantasy that uh, he's in love with this beautiful firefly who lives in the sky, uh, Evangeline, the evening star. Um, she's a great big ball of burning gas billions of miles away. But he never gives up on that. I think he even gets told that that's just a star. That's just a burning, ball of burning gas. And, and his resp- response to that, rather than just, I know, uh, and the idea of, you know, but you just, you know, I don't want to kill my dream is, they didn't mean that, Cher. Like, he, he literally can't stop believing that. At the end, the force of his beliefs is so great, he gets to turn into a star and go and share the night sky with Evangeline. Effectively, we're being shown there that if you just 
believe something that much, it will be true, which is almost Dianetics. Mm-hmm. This is a case of you can want that thing and you can also incorporate your actions to, you know, for the benefit of other people without having to sacrifice that one thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Olaf acts in the best interests of everyone around him. Mm-hmm. I'll go you one further. Olaf is a manifestation of Elsa. So is the giant snow golem. They're both things that she forms with her raw emotion, snow. Olaf is the joyful emotions of her childhood, and the golem is the raw emotion of her anger when she needs to form it into solid blocks to attack people with or to get things done that she cannot physically get done herself. Mm-hmm. By the end, Elsa creates the cloud to keep Olaf cold throughout the year. That's her preserving that joyful element of her child self. Mm. Yeah, and both times she creates Olaf are in moments of joy. And even in that first that first time Olaf is created, it's when she accidentally hurts Anna and panics and the ice goes cloudy and starts spreading that as soon as that hits the Olaf snowman, he just falls apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it, it's also uh, that that same note about the the golem and Olaf are both extensions of the same thing. It's also why they're both humanoid shaped, but they don't actually look like people because they're not complete beings because they are only one f- aspect of something. Mm. But if you're going to preserve one, preserve the Olaf. Really, I'm guessing you don't have much experience with heat. Nope. But sometimes I like to close my eyes and imagine what it'd be like when summer does come. <sighs> Bees the buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing what every snow does in summer. I drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. Finally see a summer breeze blow away a winter storm And find out what happens to solid water when it gets warm And I can't wait to see what my buddies all think of me Just imagine how much cooler I'll be in summer The hot and the cold are both so intense Put them together, it just makes sense Winter's a good time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. When life gets rough, I like to hold on to my dream, relaxing in the summer sun, just letting off steam. Oh, the sky will be blue, and you guys will be there too. When I finally do what frozen things do in summer I'm gonna tell him Don't you dare In summer The assault on Elsa's fortress is where she first gets to exhibit her waterbending powers, which is what they are, in a calculated, defensive manner Uh, What does this sequence reveal about her, and what does it reveal about Hans? And you can also combine this with the confrontation between Anna and Elsa, which takes place ever so slightly before this. One of the main things that this told me about Elsa was to do with 
I mentioned before about her reactiveness is born of anxiety. When everything turns yellow, she's surrounded by fear. All of her abilities, all of her powers have become terrifying for her and everything looks like yellow glass. And when the chandelier falls and shatters, there's a high-pitched whine in the background. Now, this may just be me. I don't know if anybody else experiences this, but when I have a panic attack or an anxiety attack, that high-pitched whine is something that occurs in my head. I have tinnitus as well, and it's um, stress-related. It, it manifests itself most when I'm anxious. Most of the time, it's just like a pulsing sensation in my ear but when I'm really really stressed and really anxious that high-pitched whine comes in and I can't get rid of it until I calm down what a terrible combination hey I know you're already stressed so deal with this constant shrieking in your ear to help calm you down it's It's like when you're down to one and a half hearts in Zelda Riddy, 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 would you shut up please I'm trying to kill this boss that's exactly it (laughs) I turn off the sound at that point Mm mm-hmm Yes, weaponized anxiety. Thank you, video game manufacturers, for picking up on that one. <laughs> yeah, but also with that 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 wine sound, it's also reflective of the idea of like it's this perfect crystalline note surrounded. You're in an environment surrounded by crystal, and it's almost like because that moment happens kind of in slow motion, and it's supposed to help like drive home. It's like this moment, this horrible moment, stretching into eternity, like this one chime being dragged out across your ears and your subconscious. The confrontation between Anna and Elsa also does one of the things I love most about musicals, which is where they take two or three previous songs and combine them into something where they flip the emotions of those songs. You've got the conceal, don't feel aside of For the First Time in Forever, uh, but you also have let it go in there and you have Anna using uh, for the first time in forever in a kind of like, I need to get you back to the castle because uh, everything's going wrong. And when Elsa says, I can't and lashes out and hurts Anna without even knowing it. Uh, the piece of music that plays is one from the very beginning of the film. It's during the Beware the Frozen Heart song that da, 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 da. only now it has a very threatening look what you've done sensibility to it so Mm -hmm. all of these songs kind of wrap into this sort of climax and everything after that is the the third act of the film this is the um the all of the themes kind of wrapping up and then just exploding because they can't cohabit i love that that disney has been teaming up with the lopez's so frequently now just because they're an amazing songwriting duo and yeah this film is just a showcase of their skill like they they worked on winnie the pooh before this they were they've uh did like um oh, what are the two musicals they're known for avenue q and the book of mormon as well like those are they're amazing songwriters of like great wordplay great tunes i've read that they were actually even told to rein in the wordplay just a little bit on this movie just for the sake of translation but they are they're, they're an amazing songwriting force that actually that actually says so much because Avenue Q is one of those ones that like on the surface is like just this really cute shallow idea like like seemingly shallow idea of like what if Sesame Street was for adults and then you listen to the song and watch the play and it's like this is tremendously profound on a level I wasn't expecting out of puppets which like, is why the Happy Time Murders was entirely superfluous yeah yeah I yeah but no like 
Yeah, no, Avenue Q is poignant and meaningful. And it's like, it, now that you tell me that, it makes so much sense because <laughs> it, it makes sense for this this thing. It also makes sense for that one episode of Scrubs they wrote that's much very similar to the Once More with Feeling you mentioned. But because it's the same thing of like, this is a cute idea. And oh, by the way, this is actually about some very heavy themes. And if you pay attention to what we're doing, this is this means something, um, which is. I mean, that's that's this movie in a nutshell. But this this moment of Anna singing to Elsa, but Elsa has retreated within herself and is not hearing Anna. She's singing to herself. And it's also I think this is really important on why we why Elsa is so good and why we care about Elsa so much is this immediately shows that she wants to be herself. She wants to be free. But the moment she finds out she's hurting people, she panics. That is never, ever what she wanted. And that's how you make her a villain is if had she been cut free and she's it's like, hey, you're freezing your kingdom and technically killing everyone down below. And had she been like, well, I don't care. This is this is the new me. And it's about being free. That's not what she does. What she does is, oh, God, I'm a, I am the monster. I am the problem. But Anna is desperately trying to tell her. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't go. Don't go back there. Don't go back into the don't shut. Please don't shut the door. That's literally a, a line in the song of, you know, uh, you know, please don't hide from me again. We like this. You just come back and make sure it stays with you and not, you know, don't start spreading the ice into everyone else. Yeah, And I love that Elsa, too. She also likes this. Her she feels extremely distressed that she's caused damage. But when like guards come in to try to take her in she's not going back she's mm-hmm. not like i'm not going to stop being me she's just scared and she's going to fight them off but she still really cares about what she might have accidentally done though mm-hmm. but she does try to turn it back on herself to a point and that trying to bring the power back inside and okay stop feeling stop feeling then it will all go away the more you try to battle that kind of of emotion that's desperately trying to find a a way to express itself the more you try and push it down the more you repress it the more it's going to come out and the i think the, the beware the frozen heart refrain is here because there's a play on where the frozen heart is the point of the the ice attack if you like when Anna was little and it was in her head. The trolls said that the head is easier to change, the heart not so much, and a frozen heart could potentially kill her. And I almost feel as though there's also that idea of, does Elsa have a frozen heart? If Elsa's heart was frozen, she'd be okay, inverted commas. I don't think it would kill her. But because Anna is... Her her nature is to be around people and to be warm, and that's why the frozen heart is so dangerous for her specifically. Yeah, no, and it's it's literally the beware the frozen heart, and yet the parents are constantly trying to tell her to freeze your emotions, freeze your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. and and had she frozen her heart, that's how you get that villain we just described, where she doesn't care about anyone else, and that's uh, it's almost like that's what the real life villains look like. It's the people who have no empathy for anyone else. Mm, absolutely, and that's the echo of. Kay with the piece of magic mirror in his eye. Elsa, although she is the Snow Queen in this story, she's also Kay. Mm-hmm. It's when she says, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel, and she repeats this mantra to herself repeatedly, that what she's asking of herself is so antithetical to being human. Uh, this... This is the part of the film that made me most resent her parents, and it made me most think of conversion therapy. Sending your your son or daughter away to a camp to have them, if they are gay, to make them hate that part of themselves. 
These are notorious for a high level of suicide. And they're something that uh, Vice President Mike Pence is wholly behind. Uh, it's, it's inhuman treatment, and it will be looked at back on with shame, much like the Spanish Inquisition, in, if we survive into the future. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's all but illegal in this country. I don't know what the, the position on it is in America, whether it's that it is at the moment and, they, and Pence wanted to make them more free in what they did or, or whether... He was just trying to stop people from closing it, them down. There's literally nothing good that can come of it. No. It's it, evil. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's loosely protected under the First Amendment for like freedom of religion because it's almost always based couched in a religious sense, and it's like you can't – yeah, it, but you, you say it's like it's going to be looked back on with shame. It, it is now. Everyone, everyone who's not – not on board with that is immediately aware like that's an awful thing to do to people <laughs> you don't have to protect me i'm not afraid please don't shut me out again please don't slam the door you don't have to keep your distance anymore because for the first time in forever i finally understand for the first time in forever We can fix this hand in hand We can head down this mountain together You don't have to live in fear Cause for the first time in forever I will be right here Anna, please go back home Your life awaits Go enjoy the sun and open up the gates Yeah, but I know you mean well Believe me, be. Yes, I'm alone, but I'm alone and free. Just stay away and you'll be safe from me. Actually, we're not. What do you mean you're not? I get the feeling you don't know. What do I not know? Arendelle's in deep, 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 deep snow. What? You kind of set off an eternal winter everywhere. Everywhere. Well, it's okay. You can just unfreeze it. No, I can't. I, I don't know how. Sure you can. I know you can. Cause for the first time in forever, oh, I'm such a fool. I can't be free. No escape from the storm inside me. I can't control the curse. In the Assault on the Fortress of Solitude, and I like that's what we're calling it, um, there are two purely visual moments that are further hints towards Hans's true nature. And one of them one of them I missed the first time, in the, and the other one I just accepted because it just kind of, again, it's, it's playing off of the what you expect out of the story at this moment. So he shows up, the ice golem tries to fend off him and the guards and he pulls out the sword and he cuts through its leg and runs up the stairs like all right i got past this golem at this point you should be asking 
If he's here to talk to Elsa, why did he bring a sword, let alone a sword sharp enough to cut through about th- about three feet of solid ice? The second one that someone else had to point out to me, when we were talking about the chandelier fall, when he he hits the hand up and it shoots the chandelier and it falls and it very nearly kills Elsa. Watch that sequence. He runs into the room. The camera is directly, it's close up on his face so that you can clearly see him look up, see the chandelier, look down, then make his decision to go hit the guy's hand upwards. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's trying to make it look like an accident. Yeah. He's like, don't waste your bolt just firing it at her. We've got a a whole like mousetrap we can (laughs) fire. Oh, and more importantly, it It looks like it's a tragic accident and he tried to save her. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that it makes for a way better story for the uh, for the kingdom, which he like, tearfully has to come back to and go. I'm so sorry, she died. Guess I'm your oh, king and more, now. Yeah. And she died, and not because of me, but because of these assassins who were sent by this Duke of Weaselton. Oh yeah, get uh, rid of him. Yeah, yeah. I tried to stop them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really tried, but it's it's it it's one of those moments. It's foreshadowing, and foresh- I know I'm making a lot of this sound like it's like, oh, these are cool Easter eggs you can identify. It's like no foreshadowing is there because it's about identifying character actions that drive towards the emotional payoff of the story. And good, there's a reason good writing has good foreshadowing, even if it's not about a twist or about um, a big reveal foreshadowing happens in all stories. It just so happens that there's a twist here. That is that Hans is playing into um, as well as all the other characters. Um, And in this case, they, Again, mise-en-scene, the director is showing us this moment for a reason. They make it a point not only to animate him looking up, but to this three-second shot close up on his face so that we have no illusions that he knew exactly what he was doing. This isn't a, huh, I wonder, like, this isn't a fan theory. This is, no, this is in the film that he knows what he's doing about at this moment. Yeah. I'm getting a little bit better at, at picking these things out with CG animation, but I struggled for a while because with 2D animation, it's kind of instinctive that there's nothing here that isn't meant to be here because it takes so long to design each frame and, and draw each frame. They wouldn't put it in unless it was important. With CG that still holds, but there are also lots of joining things up moments yeah. that, that might just be there because that's how that particular character moves. or Different positioning or of the like camera that. and exactly. acknowledging yeah. that it is a 3D space. There was a, a feature which showed how the camera moves in 3D space when they are trying to get an action shot. Mm. And uh, effectively, it, it virtual reality puts you in this landscape and you can jiggle the camera around to make it feel more authentic. This It was a specific moment when the ship was crashing over sideways onto the uh, ice. But there was there's no analogue for that in the uh, 90s Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Not really. I mean, I suppose the closest would be something like the Wildebeest sequence, mm-hmm. if you were going to map but that out in 3D, or, or the Tarzan deep canvas. But even then, there are elements of computer assistance with that, because with purely hand-drawn animation it feels like nothing exists outside the frame of that shot. Mm. Maybe a little bit just outside what's about to come into it, what's just left it, but you are not surrounded by an entire world that you just happen to be seeing some bits of. Now for the bit with the trolls and the fixer-upper song. This is, for me... 
one of the only weak points in the film. And this time when I watched it, I finally got that it actually serves a narrative purpose. But it feels like something of an own goal in the execution. Why do you suppose that might be for me? I'm just going to let other people interpret why this song might be weak source. Narratively and in terms of self-awareness, it doesn't achieve anything for me that Love is an Open Door hasn't already done. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. I would I would assume because it's on the surface like like the 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 textual interpretation of it is it's about it, it's almost it, it's almost like the trolls are rushing to fulfill the get married to the person you just met trope yeah. uh, rather than rather than actually buying into what this what the 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 lyrics of the song are about and that actually undercuts the idea that the trolls know about love and mm-hmm. have raised Christoph right, which suggests that they know better than this. Well, and, and I think that's why Christoph stops them, because he's still... Ex- he's like, guys, she's engaged to someone else, and they do the... Oh, well... But like, it, by it's the way, I don't jo- see no ring. Well, that seems a very contemporary thing for a small child to say. Yeah, well, and it's it's a thing of, like, it's a weirdly... It's a, it's, it's, it, it, it is the, like... Like like you said, they should know better, but it's weird that they're the ones jumping to conclusions here. I'd, I'd be interested. I, I want to hear if if any of you feel like this song does belong in this movie and why. I I've actually would be really curious to hear it. Just I, the more times I watch it, the more I don't like this song on any level. And just if for no other reason than the fact of that, just messaging the potential value of a fixer-upper relationship feels just increasingly unpalatable with every passing year to me. Mm. Yeah. Like, you can try to, like, gussy it up a little bit with the, we're not saying you can't change people because people don't ever change, but, you know, love is love. Like, or love is love is weird. Who knows what'll happen? Like, that feels irresponsible. Hmm. I'm amazed that this got in and was probably a deadlock, whereas they were like, do you want to build a snowman? Is it all that important? Also, with a couple of tweaks... They could have done a song He's got a couple which of tweaks. similar and got the same message across, but it almost feels like what they need to be doing at this point is saying to Anna, you've got an ideal of what love ought to be. Don't let that blind you to the fact that this guy's actually really cool. But also, that's a sideline. Anna's got so much on her plate right now. Mm. But, I mean, like... that. There is a reason for them to do that because they're, I suppose they're like, right, well, the only way she's going to be saved is true love's kiss. She's got hours of left of life. Let's do the fixer up a song because otherwise this girl's dead. Yep. That's another thing I realised. It was like, okay, well, they're trying to save her life here. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. We're on a real, like, emotional fulcrum of tragedy at this point. Yeah. And they decided now was the time for a jolly little fun song. I never saw the Trolls movie. But it feels like this could have been in the Trolls movie. Well, and this is also really weird in the runtime in the structure of the movie. This is the last song in the movie. This is the, after this for the entire third act. The movie kind of forgets it's a musical, um, and this is the last. As do one, most and Disney <laughs> musicals. Yeah, well, and it's like if you're gonna do that, the song you end the the musical beats of this, like 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 the the part where you stop being a musical is on the reprise of. Let it go, mixed crossed with um, uh, first time in forever. You ended on that her getting hit by the ice in the heart. The the refrain of 
beware the frozen heart and that also thematically works for like hey uh this this disney musical you've been in is over now because you're dying because of the because neither of you has a good enough emotional grasp on the situation yeah (laughs) they could almost have put it in more or less the format it's in later after the whole crisis situation has been dealt with and then it would have made more sense that anna then starts to see the positive elements of Kristoff because she does start to respond to him towards the end of the film but what that means is she took on board everything that they were saying in this song at a point where she was thinking she was going to die Mm. at which point I would like to think her focus was elsewhere I can't actually think of anywhere in the film where the the song would actually have been great maybe like at the very goddamn beginning (laughs) Like, but maybe she, in the sequel. Yeah, <laughs> this feels like this belongs in the sequel, or in but, Frozen Fever, or that other one. That that what people might not know about this, but uh, Coco had a, another Frozen short that played before it, and it went on for like twenty two minutes. And it had a bunch of songs in it. And people were leaving the theatre and going, sorry, I paid to see Coco. What the fuck is this Olaf thing going on? People thought that they'd walked into the wrong cinema. That's not a short. That's an episode at that point. Pixar took it off. Like uh, after a few, uh, after a week or so, uh, Coco was going out without it and was so much the better for not having it. But yeah, this could have been in one of those. Like continued marketing ploys. Like, I don't even entirely buy this as being the trolls trying to really sneakily save her life without really letting onto it, because this is just what the trolls do before their mage chief shows up and stresses, wait, this is, we're in a bad spot. Yeah. This is just with the like, trolls, trolls screwing around, and then the mage shows up and saying, no, all you shut up, we're in, we're, this is crisis mode right now. It's no, such this- a sudden switch back to, let's get back on clock, that if I was going to be doing my frozen edit, i just go snip, snip, oh, yeah. it actually stays on point the whole way through, yeah. none of that shit. No, it very much feels like it, it's it's the more we dissect it, the more I'm starting to see that it's like, oh, this is a holdover from one of the earlier Frankenstein drafts of this movie that we just didn't cut. I feel like, yes, like th- this is one of those few rough edges that I see more notice more and more with time that I think is just evidence of this rushed production. Like when you're when you got so little time left that 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 deadline is just like right there in front of you. Sometimes you make choices in a snap moment that you don't have time to take back later and this seems like one of those things it didn't hurt the box office but uh like the the classic 90s uh, disney's tend to be about an hour and 23 minutes long this is an hour and 40 just snip that away suddenly you got a bit, a bit more palatable of a running time it's a, so, yeah. it's a little thing but it's it's that the point of the song is to overly cheerfully annoyingly push the whole true love's kiss right go 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 now and make it seem impersonal so that when you actually get the next beat of actual real emotion between the two sisters it feels much more resonant it's it's almost like they've got to swing the pendulum hard one way so that they can then pull it back and go no this is the actual true love i I almost want anna to have a song that is this i want anna to have like i I want Somehow she does need to get the information from someone that true love will melt the frozen heart. Like, she needs to get that information from somewhere, and I guess it makes sense that the trolls are that place. But then I want Anna to be the rigidly sticking to her old way of thinking guns of, oh, true love's kiss, I have to get back to Hans, and have have some, and everyone else saying, maybe cautioning her, saying, maybe that's not the answer. But she's like, no, this will solve it. I know it. And then she goes back, and then she later 
has her realization of what her whole Han situation has been. It also and that's what she learns. It also keeps Kristoff as the neat red herring because you're like, oh, Anna, you're so silly. You've got this guy. He's right there. And he might be thinking this to himself, but he's too much of a good guy to say it. And then like, so he sort of helps her to go and, and, and get uh, Hans, which he does. But without the whole, like, pushing him so that you're like, ah, the real true love's going to be Kristoff. So that then you get blindsided by, no, actually. Mm, yeah. That would have been do, so much more powerful. I do love the way they phrase it. The fact that they say it's an act of true love. Mm. Yes. Yeah. For the frozen yep. heart. It's not specifically a kiss. And more to the point, it's not having an act of true love done to you. Yeah. It's yes. no, you it, doing one. It's, it's, again, the movie playing into... It knows what we're already thinking. It knows what we expect, and the characters do that too. But the the ultimately the troll shaman is kind of the voice of the movie itself, being consistently wiser than everyone around him, and being like, "Well, no, that's that's not what I said." Like again, if you guys just listen to what I actually say, the words coming out of my mouth, we would avoid a lot of these problems. By the way, did your parents get my letters? The the what now? The letters about teaching young Elsa. No. Oh, oh no. What? What's going on this? I, I have diagrams and everything. I set up training courses. I set out a fifteen-point plan. Okay, right. But the the other thing as well is that this is there's a little echo there of the uh, the original story and the Gerda crying and that being what melts the the piece of mirror in Kay's eye, and it's. It, I mean, tears are often in fairy tales a way of healing things, but it's an, it's compassion, and they're they're kind of conflating the idea of true love and compassion, and that 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 compassionate feeling for somebody else is what love really is, and it's entangled as well. It's tears that uh, that impart the last of Rapunzel's power. The other thing about this song, which really gets to me, and Dan kind of mentioned it already, but uh, it just took to reiterate on that point. We're not saying you can change him, because people don't really change. Whoa, 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 whoa. Put the forking brakes on, lady. <laughs> people don't really change is a nice kind of, like, uh, on average, people don't really change. But to say that with a dismissive hand gesture to suggest no one can change... People can and are capable of change if they want to, if they can see a way, if they have the right level of support, if they have the right opportunities. Perspective, introspection, the desire to be better and the determination to achieve that. Sometimes it's incredibly hard, sometimes it is impossible, but people can change. And for that to be a line in this stupid song is, as Dan, as you said, really pretty irresponsible on Disney's part. Absolutely, and you need... and. Showing love to people who are capable of that change may well be the thing that like brings that change about in them. But at the same time, young girls, young boys, both like young anyone, do not like for your own safety, do not enter a relationship assuming you're looking at a Zuko situation. <laughs> if they're like do not like or show love, don't become romantically attached or connected to like be, just be safe and aware that like that's the that's the other side of the irresponsibility part of this sort of messaging song to me that I'm just mm-hmm. decreasingly comfortable with because the like the old cliche of like I can fix something is a fun fantasy and I bet it's I'm sure it's happened sometimes in life but man oh man that's dangerous here's the bottom line on that particular scenario you can't change someone else 
someone else can change themselves. Yeah. And I think yeah. what, what you're talking about there with that, that sort of fantasy ideal of I can change him, I can fix him, really what you're hoping for, if that's the mindset, is he will love me enough to change himself. He will want to be a better person and that will help him to change. And that is possible. It might happen. But you cannot change them. This is a revision of the song in Beauty and the Beast. There's something sweet and almost kind, but he was coarse and he was rude and unrefined. The Let's look at this with more maturity and, and suggest that, yes, Beast could change, mm. but it's going to take a hell of a lot of effort on his part. Yeah. But that subtlety is even there in that. Uh, yeah. Beauty does not go over there and take the porridge bowl off him and show him how to use the spoon properly. Mm. He observes her and then he makes the decision to stop messing about with the spoon and, you know, drink it. Yeah. Beauty yeah, and yeah, the lyrics. Sorry. I think it was all four of us at once. Even within the lyrics of that song, though, there's that subtlety. Like, she is recognizing change happening in him. It's not like a. I bet he's kind if I just work. Like, it's not that situation. <laughs> like, she's seeing that, like, I've been just around him unwillingly for a little while, but I'm actually starting to see that there is, there's a better person coming out and emerging here. And, I've, and that she's taking notice of. Before. Well, and it, it's like Sharon was saying, it's like, you can't change someone, but it, you can potentially be the impetus for why they choose to change themselves. But you, it's, it's nothing that you do specifically. No, the, the no, other, no, 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 the it's, not a, it's not a choice that, you make. Exactly. The no. other danger of that is the mentality of if I'm kind enough, if I'm patient enough, if I don't shout, if I don't no. lose my, my temper, if no. I'm perfect, they will be perfect in response because that's when you end up with concealed <laughs> feel. But this extends beyond romantic interests. What we're really talking about, the real dangerous person, isn't Hans here that she has no idea of what a monster he is and it's not about Hans changing. It's about Elsa and someone that she has prepared herself to completely and utterly put her faith in that uh, Elsa will be able to change to incorporate this new version of herself into the world and there is go you know there is an unspoken point where effectively anna will be having to put her faith in elsa beyond the point where she is even capable of change but this is where the true love comes in anna is prepared to die for elsa mhm anna wouldn't actually meet that point where she can't go on anymore um she has commit, and, and and this applies to family members who we commit ourselves to uh, defending and trying to, uh, you know, bring back and never give up on. And it is a very admirable quality, and not something that I'm going to uh, admonish. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we can't bring them back. Sometimes we suffer as a uh, greatly as a direct result. And this goes for friends. This goes for. Um, uh, lovers, but uh, the fact that the chains of family are almost unbreakable to a lot of people, societally speaking, family is the one thing you don't give up on. I believe it was Vin Diesel who said that, <laughs> the great philosopher poet of our time. And it's as true today as it was when he first said it. <laughs> you don't give up on family. <laughs> Specifically, he's talking to half a dozen people, only one of whom he's related to by blood. Yeah. That's a chosen yeah. family. Yeah. Well, and it, go, it goes to this, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're 
talking a little bit about this idea that family family is chosen, that it's it's the people you choose to care about, you choose to allow into your life and to affect you and to to matter to you. And it's this it's actually this thing that Anna represents throughout the entire story and it's very apparent there in when she's doing it with the reprise of first time in forever where she's saying come back home still be you still be this crystal frozen palace just do it near us because we don't we want you back we don't want you gone we don't want you to have to isolate yourself we want you to be you that's all actually that's all we've ever wanted out of you um it's this love love is acceptance love is acceptance and it's trust and that's really what this is trying to drive home and that's what anna embodies completely in her self-sacrifice at the end of the movie is she accepts and trusts elsa at the end enough to be willing to lay down her life for her What's the issue, dear? Why are you holding back from such a man? Is it the clumpy way he walks? Or the grumpy way he talks? Or the pear-shaped, square-shaped weirdness of his feet? And though we know he washes well, he always ends up sort of smelly. But you'll never meet a fellow who's as sensitive and sweet. So he's a bit of a fixer-upper, so he's got a few flaws. Like his peculiar reindeer This thing with the reindeer That's, that's a little outside of nature's laws So he's a bit of a fixer-upper But this we're certain of You can fix this fixer-upper Up with a little bit of love Can we please just stop talking about this? We've got a real actual problem here I'll say So tell me, dear Is it the way that he runs scared? Or that he's socially impaired? Or that he only likes to tinkle in the are you holding back your fondness due to his unmanly blondness? Or the way he covers up that he's the honest goods? He's just a bit of a fixer-upper. He's got a couple of bugs. His isolation is confirmation of his desperation for healing hugs. So he's a bit of a fixer-upper, but we know what to do. The way to fix up this fixer-upper is to fix him up with you. So she's a bit of a fixer-upper. That's a minor thing. Her quote engagement is a flex arrangement. And by the way, I don't see no ring. So she's a bit of a fixer-upper. Her brain's a bit betwixt. Get the fiancé out of the way and the whole thing will be fixed. We're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. It's funny how people change, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do people really change? I think they do. Yeah, but I mean, they still stay who they are so much. I think we change all the time. Maybe stay the same, but grow, I guess, a little bit. I think if you're growing, then you're changing. But I mean, we're changing from who we are, which we always stay as. No, not really. I don't think so. I don't think so. I know. We're only saying that love, of course, is powerful and strange. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. that can fix a fixer-upper is
You're getting married. This kind of brings up another question that I wanted to ask, assuming we're getting toward kind of the events of the ending now. We are. Please. Uh, <laughs> why, why doesn't <laughs> Olaf's sacrifice meet the criteria? Why, do, why doesn't Olaf being willing to sacrifice himself to save Anna's life I meet think, the true love criteria? Honestly, if Olaf had just uh, um, sat there um, stoking the fire to make sure that it... Like, if, if the fire started going out because he was too cold and he kept blowing on it with the air in his lungs and he kept blowing on it and to, to make it live and then the fire finally started up but because of that the heat melted Olaf to the point where he could no longer reconstitute and he in fact died that would have brought Anna back fan theory but I think it would have I, I disagree because mm-hmm. for me the essence of it is that the act is committed by Anna herself ah okay which I do the, like the the idea that if she has sorry I keep using that phrase and you you don't like it the idea that, that the idea that the idea that so Anna is experiencing this frozen heart this freezing of her emotions this freezing of who she is really meant to be which stems from the exact point that emotionally speaking Elsa said I can't and yeah. your all of your love and care that you put into me is for nothing yeah. Um, I can never be what it is you want me to be. And to thaw her own heart and to get herself back, Anna has to perform an act that is completely and authentically her, which is one of love. So I don't think whoever did it, whoever did something for her, it wouldn't have worked. And that, again, echoes that... I echoes that theme of change comes internally. It's not something that someone else does to you or for you. It's something you choose to do for yourself. Yeah, it's it it, it it's that idea. It, it's also that sort of idea. Of, sorry, that it that conceit that um, in a way this is Anna's problem, and that if you were so a true love's first kiss. Would, would involve her because she's part of that. And if it's true love, it's mutual and it does involve her. But that idea of someone else, someone else doing an act of true love, a sacrifice for her, does it like, again, it's cool. They would have thawed their own frozen heart, but it doesn't help her because she's, it's, it, you know, the love isn't getting to touch the frozen heart. It's not really, it, Olaf sacrificing himself, it, it's removed. And it, it is an issue that she needs to solve it, you know, clean, clean up. Uh, not her own mess, but it, it is a problem that is centered on her. Well, but she it's also to clean up Olaf. Yeah, well, and it's also <laughs> I think it's I think it also says something about Olaf's character that her sacrificing herself to save Elsa, while partially instinctual, is a choice that she makes. I don't think Olaf is capable of that because it is literally who he is. It, he's almost more of an avatar. He's an embodiment, not. Like an id and ego, a super goat. He's not, he's not, like, as he's melting, it's not that he makes the choice to come over and melt. He's just fine with this result, if that makes any sense. Hang on. He does say some people are worth melting for, which does suggest choice. Well, yeah, yes. An awareness, yeah. But I, I think that it comes back to him being an aspect of Elsa. He is a facet of her childlike emotions that's been created. He's not, it's not so much that he's not capable of choice, but he is not capable of the mature version of those emotions. Yeah, it, it thematically, also, yeah. sorry, thematically also, the, 
the frozen heart of the storm outside, uh, you're right. Those aren't Olaf's fault. Like those are, that's an imbalance that is not from Olaf. It's an imbalance in the Elsa on a relationship. And so it does, it is much more thematically filling that it fitting. That is the two of them needing to take action to stop this. Exactly. Well, and and it, with Anna and her act of sacrifice thawing her own heart, that act of sacrifice then presents Elsa with the evidence that she is this loved and this accepted, and that enables her to then overcome her fear and thaw her frozen heart and then undo the freezing of Arendelle as a whole. Yeah, it, it's it's... It's an act of reaching out to Elsa that she cannot shut the door on, that she can't shut out, that she can't ignore, that she can't pretend is like, no, 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 you're just saying that. It's like, uh, no, I just threw myself in front of a sword and froze to death in an instant to protect you. Like, tell me I'm faking that. Part of why Olaf's sacrifice doesn't work thematically is because, again, he is the childlike joy from Elsa and Anna. So letting that be sacrificed would actually worsen the problem in Elsa. Anna sacrificing herself to protect not only Elsa, but also to protect Olaf is also her acting to preserve the parts of Elsa that need to be saved. Absolutely. And visually as well, what she does causes a a visual link between them, a connection that Elsa can't ignore. Anna is now the same colour as her clothes. The That ice theme she's gone blue with the white round the edges when Elsa drapes herself over the frozen Anna they start to merge you have to look carefully to be able to see where one starts and the other ends and so that shows Elsa beyond a shadow of a doubt how connected they are at that point on the topic of communicating this visually which I which I very much like what you just described there if there is one change i wish they could make to the end of this it is the visual presentation display of how elsa thought like has her realization and thaws arendelle like because on as it is currently anna melts and is restored and elsa sort of has an internal realization and says a true love will thaw of course and because like something now makes sense to her that didn't before and this time she uses magic again and it thaws everything. And we can put together what like she has realized, but I feel like visually I would love to see a... I think it would be very visually powerful, and I would have loved it, if rather than her having that realization and then just casting ice magic differently and that being what thaws the kingdom, I would love it if in that moment she just embraced Anna in a fierce hug. Like yeah. finally closing that separation between them and restoring intimacy that is they've not had for their entire life, and that melts the kingdom right there. And if they'd been standing on the ship rather than uh, in the water, you could. <laughs> That's then a good have point. The, but more, well, it just it takes a, a quick like readjustment of of where they're standing for that particular sequence. But uh, if they'd been standing on something solid, you could then have the thought radiating out from a central point, especially if you get it for this massive wide shot as the the lake suddenly starts to crack and sort of fall in on itself and then yeah like visually speaking the warmth would radiate out from the center of these two and you would drive home like the the subtle tie into the fact that it's like we're reconciling on a ship when our parents dying on a ship is partially what drove this rift home nice okay disney is there time to do a special special edition (laughs) (laughs) we know you revised this story like 50 times can you do like one more real quick take out fixer upper while you're at it there you go (laughs) okay yeah two things just two things real quick have that for free disney 
Um, but th- there's a brief moment before the thaw happens when Elsa's, like, the snowstorm ebbs, and it's when Anna has been completely and utterly frozen solid, and Elsa is completely just drained of emotion at that point and, st- and struck with grief. <clears throat> I believe the ferocity ebbs because she's experiencing a different emotion that very powerfully nullifies the f- intensity of the cold. Anger obviously uh, a- activates this, uh, but fear is, is, is the biggest. But she's feeling sadness at this point, just, just grief and, and regret and loss, which obviously she did with uh, her parents. There's a, a, a juxtaposition shot earlier in the film when... Um, Anna's got her back to the door and it cuts around to the other side and they're both experiencing grief and loss of their parents. But Elsa's, like, the, the whole room is... It's, like, spider-webbed with uh, frost all emanating from the exact point that uh, Elsa is uh, uh, by the door. And that was fear and, and, and grief and anger, but, but mostly just... Um, what the hell am I going to do now? Yeah, an emotional outburst of, 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 of a child. There's another one later where uh, Anna is lying against the door um, and it's, it's when the prince Hans has locked her in and it, it, it appears to be the same thing, but with the, the, the frost is closing in around her mm. because uh, of, of uh, Elsa's power. It's light coming in from the window that forms the triangle around her, whereas with Elsa it was her own... Frost that forms the uh, yeah. the pattern, but effectively the 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 grief of losing Anna at that point makes Elsa numb, albeit briefly. That it's the, the, the it, she could then have um, reacted with a, uh, a snowstorm of enough ferocity to destroy Arendelle, or she could just have walked away and um, dissipated into snowflakes. Frankly, it could have ended in absolute tragedy. It reminds me of uh, Loki in uh, the uh, one of the few good bits of uh, Thor: The Dark World when he destroys his room quietly uh, after finding out that his mother's died. No, yeah, sadness uh, hits her, and this made me think about what frozen means. And we've hit upon it time and time again. But Elsa was the one held, holding herself in place for years on end. It applies to a girl who was forced to atrophy all of her emotions and bide with that for untold years, unable to move or feel. The the whole don't feel, don't feel, don't feel. She throws everything about herself. So that's why calling it the Snow Queen would have been disingenuous. It It is better to be called Frozen in this case. And because your emotions all come from the same wellspring they all come from the same source this makes a great companion piece with inside out by the way yes it does if you freeze anger and fear then you also freeze joy and sadness and and sadness and the compassion that is the flip side of that as well you can't feel compassion unless you can feel sadness because compassion is effectively feeling sadness for someone else and that as well it could you could see it and i think if the the visual undoing of the magic had been more striking dan i think you're right the fact that she just changes the her method is not quite enough for it to really get this across it is compassion for the people of arendelle hmm. that enables her to 
shift her emotional state from fear to love. Elsa being kept in place by her parents, forced to wear the gloves, forced to stay in her room, it, it made a prisoner with the chains of secrecy also, makes her a statue, it makes her an ice sculpture, it, uh, she's being preserved, held in place, and then when her parents die, she's held in place by the memory of their misguided commands. So then, what actually happens when Anna freezes is it becomes the mirror of that, she's confronted by the statue of herself... And it's her greatest fear, which is that her powers would eventually cause Anna's death as well. And because her greatest fear has effectively come to pass, it, it almost dissipates her fear. Like, that's why she can become numb, because there's nothing left for her. And so she can then like, set aside this fear, like, what's the worst that you think is going to happen? I'll kill you. And then it happens, and she's able to live, and then they can come back from that, and that turned out to be the thing that ended up saving her. But it's forcing her to confront that uh, imagined trauma. It, uh, it speaks to this idea that... Um, J.K. Rowling's touched on it before, and uh, weirdly so has 21 Pilots, but it's this idea that... Um, sorry, I keep saying this. Now, that, now I'm aware of it. Thanks. The idea that... Um, <laughs> this... It it speaks to this notion that that's just a fancy it, idea. <laughs> <laughs> this conceit, this notion, this idea, uh, this it is this the, pondering. It is it it shares the theme of yes that um, you can take a bullet for someone, you can sacrifice yourself for someone, and that can be a noble thing. The much harder and much more noble thing to do is to live for someone, is to not sacrifice yourself, to not make yourself suffer in the name of someone else's well-being. That is a much harder and much more powerful thing to do. That fits really well with a brief conversation that I had the other day with Alistair Stewart on Twitter about why so much geek media is focused on heroic acts of sacrifice but quite scornful of the healing process because and my theory on this is that 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 moment of self-sacrifice that heroic single act is in a way easy it's quick it's sudden you only have to make one decision and do one thing and then it's done so, like, I would like to destroy the Reapers and die a hero and get a hero's funeral, but also be alive. Exactly. But the process of having done something which causes you to be immensely wounded requires you to stay calm and heal and scar over takes a long time it's not sexy it's not heroic in in certain people's eyes and so that living for somebody and healing for somebody is not pushed as being the heroic thing to do Do 
you guys know how many times Hans outright lies in this movie? Never. Outright lies. I'm guessing it's kind of low. It's once. And that's part of what makes Hans so terrifying and why I like that this movie tries to push this idea. He doesn't lie to Anna. Actually, almost ever. He lies. Actually, I don't think he ever lies to Anna. He lies to Elsa once at the very end. And it's where we find out he's actually kind of bad at it because he, she doesn't buy it. He lies to her by saying it's like, she's like, wait, where's Anna? He's like, you killed her. You know, you froze her heart and she died. And Elsa's reaction is, wait, what? No, I just saw her. That can't be true. And it's this idea that Hans is best at making you feed your own fantasies. He's actually not good at lying and, like... Telling you like, something you don't want to hear. Mm. Yeah, or... or yeah, he's... He, yeah, exactly. He's a manipulator, not a liar. But it's mo so much more powerful that he doesn't lie. That he tells her the truth. And that there is a truth to what he's saying. He just doesn't tell you everything we're gonna uh, revitalize arendelle bring back the coal miners yeah exact this exact and that exact idea he is a con artist he is a so good at, and it also requires and this is what's important because this is a huge theme of this movie it requires so much less emotional investment from him because again he's letting you do all the heavy lifting for him he doesn't actually he actually almost doesn't do anything in this movie he lets everyone else do it for him um hell even when he the part where he sort of cripples elsa emotionally he does it by using her own baggage against her he does it by saying don't be the monster they all think you are that's i mean that's not a lie it's but it's also just a really obvious ob observation he could have made at this point he he does nothing but he rides everyone else's needs to the to the forefront of being needed by by them and it's so powerful and so meaningful when like to see this. And again, I, I really like this movie as a not just a cautionary tale to young girls, but a cautionary tale to young people at all who ultimately this movie is targeted at of the these people exist and I'm showing you what they look like and they look like us. I've shown this movie to a lot of people. Like I said, my mom has a very powerful um, emotional reaction when she sees this. But I also everyone who has had a damaged, broken background um, very specifically, everyone who dealt with an emotionally manipulative person. Massive kudos to the animators, the writers, and um, uh, the voice actor. It's Sebastian something. I forget his last name. But incredible kudos to everyone who came together to make Hans what he is. Because on a subconscious level, everyone who has dealt with someone like him immediately called him out. They knew from moment one, there is something off about him, and we are subconsciously picking up on his body language, his delivery, and his animation that he is a liar. That he is – or not a liar, that he is false. That Sant there is some – he has a game he's playing. Santina Fontana. That's what – I thought it was Sebastian. I don't know why I thought that. But yeah, you're right. Yes, thank you. I love but that yeah. this movie does have such a strong core to it. But, like, a lot has been made of the fact that this film was subversive, and like, lots of people called it at the time the anti-Disney princess movie, and that's, that is not, like, there's an expiration date on how long that gets you an audience and get you gets you people's attention like subversion can be powerful and i think it is a did play a big role in this film just hitting the zeitgeist and blowing up but subversion has an expiration date in 30 years nobody's going to remember or care about how out of nowhere this movie felt at the time for disney they're only going to see 
frankly, how normal or even quaint it might feel compared to what's coming out in 30 years. So subversion only takes you so far. The film can't just be surprising to be great. It has to be strong on its own merits. And I'm so happy that Frozen is. At the end, when Anna gives Kristoff the sled and he's really happy and really enthusiastic and he really wants to kiss her and he asks her if it's okay. That's really sexy. Just a small point, but I thought I'd add it. I like that too. Oh, hey guys. Oh, hi, Danny. Can I kiss you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's less sexy in that context. (laughs) It, uh... (laughs) <laughs> Most things are when all of a sudden you add in a dash of Wiseau. But, well, um, indeed. <laughs> well, yeah, but no, it turns out a consent is sexy. Yeah, who'd have thought? Yeah, indeed. What a story, Spencer. Okay. <laughs> right. In conclusion, this film is six things. One, empathy and empowerment for people who have to keep a vital part of themselves hidden from the world or who have had to do that. Two, a critique on the love-at-first-sight trope peddled by fairy tales and several times very successfully by Disney itself in the past. Three, an argument in favour of the lifelong connection between two sisters being a valid state of true love. Four, and as a result, a princess story where princes are not required to complete the story. Five, a gentle suggestion that sometimes our fondest fantasies are impractical and the realisation of them might be downright dangerous. And six, inadvertently, by examining the absence of certain supportive decisions, it's a confirmation that even if our parents love us and are well-meaning, their actions can have devastating, far-reaching consequences upon our lives and those we connect with. That is a very, very good, concise explanation of everything that is great about this movie. I had it at Uh, the beginning of my notes, and I was like, oh no, it's devastating. We won't have anything to say afterwards. (laughs) This Uh, is a better summation. Number seven, get yourself some therapy because you're not the only one who's hurt, uh, who gets hurt by your inability to deal with your own emotions. Honestly, if uh, if they'd finished the film with uh, Elsa going so, and then just lying down on a couch and having the troll sage go, what can you tell me today, Elsa? <laughs> that would have been fine. That would be the correct relationship to have, yeah. Frozen 2, make it happen. Okay. <laughs> Frozen uh, 2, Elsa will hunting, yeah. So where can mm-hmm. people find your stuff, guys? Uh, you can find me on YouTube, or if you just want to make it easier, if you just want to type newframeplus.com into, uh, into your web browser, that'll take you to my YouTube channel where I talk about uh, video game animation and just the general craft of it. And Dan, do you have a Patreon? Not yet. Someday, though. Why not? <laughs> I was trying to get some steam, kind of, or trying to get some momentum built up and then uh, launch it once I've kind of got that going. Okay. Well, but yeah, someday, someday. If by the time this goes out, you do have a Patreon, I'll add that bit there with the uh, oh, link you. to it. Okay. Yes, as it turns out, in the interim months between recording and releasing this episode, Dan did indeed set up a full-on Patreon for New Frame Plus, and you can Google it and support him and this fantastic show. It's all about the minute detail of the animation in video games. It is absolutely fascinating, totally worth supporting. Which I think is pretty apropos for us to say thank you to our biggest supporters. Many thanks to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, 
Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, David Sheely, Kevin Vaihi, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Look out for Zootopia, the show we recorded in 2016 when the film came out, We Just Couldn't Wait, which I'm going to put in the podcast feed sandwiched between Big Hero 6 and Moana. We will come back for Ralph Breaks the Internet, Frozen 2, and whatever else Disney has in store at a later date. And we have finally seen Frozen 2. And I guess we're going to talk about that when we return with the Disney shows at some later date. To put it mildly, though, Frozen 1 is better. Additionally, those with Disney Plus start watching Gravity Falls because in 2020 we will be doing a whole month of shows on every single episode of that magnificent and barely seen gem. Those will be out in March, so the rest of the world, when they finally get Disney Plus and they finish binging The Mandalorian, can watch Gravity Falls along with all of you lucky Americans. Also, I don't think I've yet officially announced on this podcast that I finally finished Steamheart this year. I've been planning this out since 2013, and finally, The Avengers of New Century is complete, bringing Phase 1 to a close before we start in again with Uncivil Outlaw early next year. The truly epic Western Odyssey, Steamheart, is available on the Kindle Store and as a beautiful paperback book, and in its entirety as an uninterrupted audio drama on Bandcamp. Here's a trailer. It's 1873, and the Earth isn't doing so well. It's been ten years since the portals opened and the Wendigo first prowled among us. Their infectious bite left the human race in tatters. Over here in Washington, we're trying our best to bring things back together. It hasn't been easy. But today, we met some folks who just might be able to help. Two assassins. Climb aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This here ginormous steam-operated land vehicle you see before you is going to be a new home for all of us for the next half year. A one-eyed doctor and a crazy woman who sees ghosts. I hate confined spaces. She's claustrophobic. That too. A drug-addled journalist. Mother of God, man. We can't stop here. A monster zoologist. So where exactly did the mermaid bite you? Ouch. And our own dear sweet daughter. All right, buckle up. Uh, We don't want to get stranded out in the wild, so can you please try not to break anything back there? Oh, this is going to be splendid. And that's who you're sending to save the world. Can you suggest anybody better suited to the job? Under the circumstances and in the short amount of time we have... It'll do. There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You are the child of the prophecy. Really? No! Prophecy. (laughs) You jackass. This team is all wrong. America doesn't want us. Girl, you forgot that bad things happen to them who come trespassing. And you forgot about our ten-foot-tall purple tiger. Oh, my stars and goddess, did you boys pick the wrong fight? Everybody, hold on real hard to the person next to you. This journey is about something more than just saving the world. 
This is about reminding the world why it's worth saving in the first place. And how were we ever supposed to accomplish that? I've never known friends like you before. If I was gonna build a family, these would be the components I'd need. When people are down, when they're scared and divided, when they want to curl up and die because things have gotten so bad, how the hell else are we gonna pick them back up again? We give them heroes. Steamheart. We found something out there. Or, more specifically, it found us. You were warned not to venture into these lands. Wait, hold on. I can explain. No, I can't. Run! Thank you, gentlemen and lady, for coming on our show. Next week, we've got Big Hero 6 for you. And we're going to close out with the version of Let It Go from the end of the movie, sung by Demi Lovato. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Let it go, let it go. of isolation and it looks like I'm the queen the wind is howling like this swirling storm inside couldn't keep it in heaven knows I tried don't let them in don't let them see be the good girl you always had to be don't feel, don't let them know Well, now they know Let it go, let it go Can't hold it back anymore Let it go, let it go Turn my back and turn the door And here I stand And here Small, and the fuse that once controlled.